coffee and pie you could die for. This is the Black as Midnight on a Moonless Late Night Show with Scott Ryan. Tonight, Sheriff Harry S. Truman, Norma Jennings, and musical guest Silencio. Stupid human tricks. Plus, Deputy Hey Now Joshua Minton and the TPU Orchestra. And now, the only FBI agent you need, Scott Ryan. hovering over me like a giant, like my audience is sitting captive, like they're in the red room. Have a seat. Thank you so much for that ovation. We have a great show for you tonight, and I hope you all had a wonderful holiday. I mean, I struggle every year with what kind of tree to put up, fake or real. I mean, who knows? But this year I said, you know what? I'm going for it. I'm getting the real tree. So I grab my axe and I go out to Ghostwood Forest. I get ready to chop down this beautiful Douglas fir. I turn around and look, and who's standing there but the log lady, holding her log, chomping on some pitch gum. I had to go with a fake one. I mean, you try to chop down a tree when the log lady's staring at you. <laughs> that is rough, even if it was her temper. Plus, do you really want to bring that evil from the woods into the house? No, no, good call. Better to give that money to Horn's department store. Certainly nothing evil there. Of course not. We love the Horn Brothers. I use Jerry's products all the time, if you know what I mean. So, we might as well start off talking about politics. I mean, even in our small town, we still get sucked up into this crazy world of politics like a gray vortex in the sky. But I'm just wondering, I mean, are you guys like me? Are you getting sick of those 3 a.m. tweets from the mayor? Yes! Oh, yeah, all the time. I mean, I don't get it. Does this mayor have nothing better to do? And also, why is every tweet asking, is this thing on? Is this thing on? It's the internet. It's always on. Man, I am struggling with that new speed limit out there on Sparkwood and 21. Last night, I got picked up for speeding by Sheriff Harry S. Truman. (laughs) Don't worry, though. Before he could write the ticket out, he changed into Frank Truman and had no idea why he pulled me over. some bad news. The old bookhouse burnt down this weekend. Oh, no. Yeah, it was just a small fire, but when the fireman showed up, all he did was throw golden orbs of Laura Palmer at it. I mean, the place burnt to the ground in a second. 
That's it, folks. That's all we got. That's the jokes, man. We have a great show for you tonight. Lots of great guests. But we're gonna kick us off like we always do. Let's hear it for Deputy Josh Minton and the TPU Orchestra. Thank you. Great job. All right, boys and girls. Let's kick it off in one, two, three... his head out of the black lodge. Are you tired of the everyday struggle to open pickle jars, crack walnuts, or defeat inhabiting spirits and extreme negative forces? Do you wish you had the strength of a massive pile driver? Well, now you can. And it's all thanks to the incredible Green Gardening Glove from Fireman's Hardware. The Green Gardening Glove is made from... And can revolutionize your life. Whether you're knocking out corrupt small town deputies or simply getting into bar fights on your friend's birthday. All for the amazing low, low price of $29.95. That's right, just $29.95. Call now on 1 800 430 253. And we'll also send you a second non functional glove absolutely free. Just pay shipping and handling. And with our 30 day money back guarantee, if you don't love our green gardening glove, simply return it for a full refund. We're confident you'll never want to take it off. And even if you did, good luck trying. So what are you waiting for? Start living your life to the full today with the Green Gardening Glove, only from Fireman's Hardware. Remember, 1-800-430-253 for your order completion. Dirty bearded men are waiting in a room to take your call. The Green Gardening Glove is not FDA approved. Side effects may include permanence, confusion, and sudden encounters with interdimensional beings, not sold in or above convenience stores. Christmas shopping has never been easier than it is this year at Horn's Department Store. From our men's and ladies' fashion departments, to fine housewares, to gifts for the kids, Horns has everything you need to make this holiday season merry and bright. Peruse our collection of crystal stemware, elegant china in all the most popular patterns, and don't forget our new line of -of one-of-a-kind bespoke teapots, imported directly from jolly old England. They make the perfect gift for the most discerning recipients on your gift list. Our selection of European fragrances is the best in the Northwest. Treat your lady friends the loveliest perfumes that make a real statement, whether she prefers forested or fruity scents. Stop in and visit our Christmas tree lot, where you'll find only the best firs and pines for your home and hearth. Every tree is $5, and all proceeds go to the door at home for boys. You'll find everything you need to decorate in our decor department, the most shimmering tinsel, the brightest lights, and a wide selection of tree toppers. From stars to angels. And don't forget, this week only, we're offering free gift wrapping on all purchases over $10. We're also extending our store hours to 9 p.m. It's the perfect solution for you last-minute shoppers. For the the things things you need, the things things you want, and and everything everything in between, visit Horn's Department Store on the corner of Maple and Snow in downtown Twin Peaks. from 
commercial and ready to go. Um, got a little program change here. We were going to have Norma Jennings come out and bake a cherry pie with us. Unfortunately, some lady blocked her in. I guess she's beeping her horn nonstop as some girl next to her vomits in the parking lot. Sounds like a real mess. I would uh, stay away from the double R tonight. But instead, we're going to take a listen to a best of clip from producer Sabrina Sutherland and then roll right in to actress Amy Shield. So take a listen. Sabrina, we thought we'd talk about the Blu-ray. And uh, since, you know, it's been out for several weeks, about a month or so, but I thought it'd be fun to talk to you about your involvement with it. You, you've been, you're listed as an executive producer and producer of the documentaries. Can you share with us your role in the Blu-ray and the documentaries? Sure. The Blu-ray overall, all the pieces that went into the Blu-ray, that was um, Ken Ross from CBS, David, and myself, and calling through everything, figuring out what, what would work and what wouldn't, and what, and so that's the team that did that, that's the executive producer part. Wow, that is something, that's yeah, a lot, cool. and, and, the, and wow. you then have the uh, also your <laughs> producer title for the actual show, so you had a lot going on. Yeah, it was a, a, a you know, full, a full four or five years of stuff, Yeah, was pretty extensive, but um it was well worth it, I think. I, I think everybody really did a great job, and, and I'm happy that I was able to be able to work on it. Yeah, yeah. for sure. And I love seeing actually seeing you there with David Lynch behind, yeah. behind the scenes working. Yep. And, and we've talked before how David Lynch is involved with everything, but to actually get the opportunity to see him you know, doing the scenes and actually do it really, he is so involved with everything that happens in making this show. Yeah, he is the point person for everything. You know, I, I feel bad for him in a way because he was on call 24 hmm. seven and nothing really could be done without him. And I imagine you were the next one to call, right? Or maybe you were the first one to call and then he, you, you said that you let David know, I imagine. Well, yeah, I think I was just kind of there to make sure everybody got heard because it's very difficult for, you know, a hundred plus people going to one person all the time. Yeah. So I'm kind of there to help facilitate more than anything, making sure everything's running right. Uh, everybody has their say that needs to with David, getting information from David out to people. So it's a lot of logistics and communication. Tell us how uh, Impressions, a journey behind the scenes of Twin Peaks, Jason S.'s documentary came about. Like, did he pitch his idea? or like it's very unique in that I, I take it as almost like a, a foreigner experience of chasing after David Lynch and you have this yeah it's a very it's a very unique yeah structured documentary how did this come about when it was all determined that we were going to have a new show one of the key things that Ken myself and David wanted to do was to have a, a behind the scenes person there all the time. Right. Mainly because, you know, traditional behind the scenes are certainly not David's cup of tea, but they don't really get behind the scenes. It's kind of more commercial or not really. It it doesn't really explain a lot necessarily or they don't. What really happens behind the scenes is more interviews with people and talking, but not seeing things, if that Mm. makes sense. And David was uh, with Jason. Jason also did Lynch 1, Lynch 2, the new Lynch 3, the art life. He and Jason have a very close relationship, and 
he's fine with Jason shooting David all the time. David and I were talking. David was adamant that it was Jason who had to be this particular videographer in a way. Yeah. And he wanted Jason to be there every day. Wow. So, um, unfortunately, Jason couldn't come at the very beginning of the shoot when we were up in Washington. The first few weeks, he came up towards the end when we were in Washington. So we were able to get Charlie who's worked with Ken before, and also he, he did has done some other Twin Peaks things in the past. And then when Jason came up, Jason was with us every day. You had shared with us at the, uh, the Twin Peaks Festival about how Miguel had scheduling conflict, and to be able to see in this documentary, David seems to be agonizing, but to tell the crew, you know, we need to work Saturdays and stuff like that. Yeah. I thought that was a special moment that that was shared with fans to see that, hey, you know, we're we we all we're all kind of, a, it seems to me like you guys are all family and you guys pull it together and you guys work things out. Yeah, that's one of my, well, I think even I said that, um, something that's just very touching to me and I'm really glad that Jason did include that because yeah. it does show how much all of us, but David in particular, just loved Miguel and wanted to make it work with him. And even though people were upset about it, you know, it was kind of like, this is what we're going to do. Let's all work together and and make it fun. And and everybody did. I don't want to make it seem like there was any, uh, after that kind of, not confrontation, but that um, plea at the production meeting where Mm. David says that, everybody was on board and everybody loved Miguel. I mean, you can't not like him. I think it came more as a frustration because we had been working so hard up in Washington and we had just come back to L.A. We thought, okay, we'll have a little bit of a break by having only five days to work and two days the weekend to relax. Other things I wonder about is there was these commercials like uh, David eating a donut. Was this all something that you guys produced or was this something that Showtime came in and put a camera there while David ate a donut? No, there, there's a whole group of them. Those are all David. David edited all of those. Oh, David put all of those teasers together. That's really That's cool. cool. He was editing the show, and we needed teasers, you know, to be on TV at the same time. Right. So while he was also editing the show, he would edit these teasers. Wow. Isn't that something? That's, That's really cool. cool. Any chance we might see on the air at some point uh, on a Blu-ray or a hotel room or, or even I would love to see Lost Highway. I mean, these are all there's so many Lynch's works that I would love to see on, on Blu-ray. Blu-ray. Yeah, closer to be Lost Highway than on the air and wow. hotel room at this point. Looking at Lost Highway for sure, that would be a great thing. I think that, that would be would cool. be a really fun one because I worked on that one. So yeah, <laughs> and, you know that's my favorite David Lynch film. That yeah, is, that is. Oh, I, I'm is very really? excited. Yeah, I've, I don't know. I just love that dreaminess of it and the dialogue and the style and the I, usually the that, soundtrack. Usually that music isn't what I like, but it works for that film. And, it, and I just I just caught caught up in it. So yeah, it's a really special yeah. movie. And and I it's exciting. We should we, we'd love to have you on again sometime. Maybe if if it comes out at some point, just to talk about your work in in Lost Highway. That would be cool. Oh, sure. I'd love to do that. I really like that film myself. So, yeah, I'd be happy to. So hopefully something like that can happen. It's so exciting to talk to you again. And I just w- thought it'd be great to be, now that the Blu-ray is out, to just get a little sense of what what it was like for you working on this stuff. And I love the documentaries. I'm yeah. amazed that you guys did like three, I'm calling them three documentaries. I mean, it's hard because Jason, <laughs> Jason S's is like five hours long. Yep. But it's still impressive to have all these documentaries in this Blu-ray. And it, it's so good. 
Well, I'm glad you like them all. This is how great the Twin Peaks community is, Sabrina. Ben, he ordered one on Amazon. It wasn't going to come in on time, so he got one from Showtime because we were going to promote it. And uh, mm-hmm. Ben was very kind. I was homesick for like three days, and Ben comes to my house and he picked uh, a copy of it at the local Best Buy, and yep. he brought he brought it to me Aww. as a, as a gift. Aww. It was very nice. He shows up at my front door, and I had something <laughs> oh, to watch when so I was sick. That service for yeah. <laughs> It was so nice of Ben. Oh, yeah. And it's so good. And I'm sure you, yeah. you enjoyed watching it. I watched it. all of Disc 8 like that whole day. Oh, <laughs> really sweet. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah. I'm crossing my fingers for Lost Highway. And I, I hope that if it comes, you know, we're able to get a Blu-ray of it, that you will come back on and tell us about your experience working on that film. Sure, if, if it happens, if it I happens. promise you I will. It's, it means so much to us that you came on again to talk with us, and I always love you sharing all your stories with us, and, and just thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me. I appreciate it very much. So thank you. your perception of candy like so when you got the script and you you got the part what did you make of this character i instantly loved her and there's mm. so little on the page because a lot of the scenes we shot weren't in the script oh. i feel most of the script is just in david's head so uh-huh. even if we had been given the entire script i think kyle was the only actor who got the entire script but it was so different to what they read anyway because david would me aside and say that you know he's going to shoot a different scene the next day and sometimes I would come in and I would do a scene that I had no clue what it was about and I would worry like did I just not prepare properly for this mm. and then I realized no there was nothing to prepare for I wasn't given this scene and then I think at one point I came in and he said you know and now Candy says her line and I'm like what line <laughs> and I said oh yeah forgot to tell her so then you know, he came over and whispered a line in my ear and it's a good thing we made so many sandwiches. Okay. So it was exciting working that way. We knew that you were in this, and I think, I thought, oh, she's going to be TP agent from Mark Frost's book. And I, a lot of us said, oh, you know, we're so excited to see mm-hmm. you. And it was like, I think it took five parts before you got into the show. And, and that was, you were just with the girls at the wall, and you didn't even speak. So it was like, what? <laughs> yeah, we were all kind of floored. Like, like when are you going to be in this? Yeah. What's going <laughs> yeah. on? Me too. In part five, you're with the girls at the wall and you're making this waving motion with your hands. Can you share with us how that came about? Is that you? Is that the script? Is that David? Oh, it was me. I just felt like that felt like it was right in the moment. I have my own reasons and backstory for that, but. That is That's awesome. It's for me to know for now. Yeah, yeah. I love that. Because I, I think of David, David's very much with his hands. And he, like when he first talked about Twin Peaks, he was like, oh, the trees make motion. And he he, he does gestures with his hands. So it felt so Lynchian. And I, I think that was so cool. And I'm sure you've seen they've done animated GIFs where it's just like a continuous loop of you doing waves with your hands. <laughs> yeah, that, was, that made me so happy. I think it's my proudest moment. I studied mine professionally for three years. And that was part of it. Just being that you wonder at the time when you study these art forms that seem so redundant these days because there's CGI and there's all these other things and there's very few times that you get to employ these tricks that you've learned over the years and you kind of wonder why you would ever use these things so it was so nice as an artist to just put something in that now I've been asked so much about it's a really proud moment for me actually I think someone tweeted it to me once they said something about it and 
I have to say, it was my proudest moment. It makes me happy. It makes me blush. It just oh. it makes me feel like this is something I created and it worked in this scenario. I don't think it would work in any other job I've ever done. I love it. Yeah. I'm so excited to hear that that was your original idea. Because that, I mean, I mean, that to me is even more special that that was all you. So that's so cool. I think everybody was talking about it the next day. Yeah. This the, the entrance you. that you guys made, the th- the three of you against the yeah. wall, and you're doing that like. Everybody, it was like a mystery. Who yeah. are these three people? What is going on? And they seem to be super cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think some of the crew member asked me about it too and asked me where it came from and what I was doing. And then one of them brought me over to David to discuss it with him because Marcel Marceau had actually taught me that when I was younger. Wow. The artist himself, he was over from Paris and he taught me that and it was nice to use it. I believe he trained David Bowie too and David Bowie is such an influence in the show as well. It was nice, I suppose, to have that little, I hadn't even thought of that actually until after, but I guess it was a, a three thread. That That's cool. You talked about scenes that weren't in the script. Uh, what did it feel like to uh, be added the scene of going after a fly? Uh, he just came to me and said, um, Amy, do you know, can you make tears? Do you know how to cry? And I said, yeah, do I? <laughs> yeah. So me and Mark are going to write something to you tonight. Uh, and Candy's so funny. She's not trying to be funny, but she is so funny. Even the way you betrayed her with crying, I it's, part of me just laughs because she's just bawling <laughs> and she goes on and on. I mean, she seems to go on for hours. <laughs> and I thought I heard that you well, actually... Well, and, and we did. <laughs> we did. <laughs> I was going to ask you, I thought I heard that you did like a day of crying. Yeah. That was a whole day. <laughs> wow. Oh, man. And what's it like seeing um, all these fans? There's so much fan art of Candy, and it seems like the, the community loves Candy. I mean, I'm blown away by people's talent and support and love and creativity. It's incredible. Mm. I have the candy pin. I love it. I got one for my mom. I got one for my friends. For Joanna Ray, the costume director. Like, that was wild. And yeah, I'm kind of holding out for a Funko Pop. I think that would be amazing. Yes. <laughs> but we haven't quite got there yet. I agree. We got to pitch that. Yeah. Season three yeah, Funko Pops. I love, I love, I love the candy love because she's so loving and kind. And I would love to spread that in the world. I think we all need a bit of kindness and we love do. out there. Yeah. I feel like candy is that. She's just, there's nothing bad about her. She wouldn't know how to say negative words. Right. Right. And I think about when she was crying, it's like, oh, you'll never love me. It was never, I mean, there's no, there's no bad part of her. She just cares about people no. and she feels horrible if she would in any way yeah. accidentally hurt somebody. So, Even huh. a fly. Oh, devastated. Yeah. You devastated her. Just, he's been so kind to her and how could she possibly hurt him that way? Yeah. It was yeah. unintentional, but still, she could feel his pain. And so did you have a favorite scene that you were that you were in because of either A, it was a great scene or because of just that day of the people around that you were you were with? Every single one has its own blessing. I mean, mm. yeah, the, the fly scene is, of course, up there. I love it. Uh, I love working with Robert. I think we work so well together. That was fun. And, even, and there was a take they didn't use where Jim Belushi picks me up. It was so funny. I mean... I think it was probably not exactly what David was going for, but it was very funny. I saw photos of it, and I love. I wish we had that on, on an outtake reel because that was amazing. I love the three of us with such a giggle, and I love the scene. Actually, I really quite enjoyed the scene where I leave to go and get some size more, and then when I come back with him, because I feel like it was a very kind of cheeky moment for her, where she was just being a little playful with the boys. I mean, I love that. That scene was great. For first, it was so funny because Candy's out there for so long. It's like, what is she talking about? And then for her to finally respond. And then I was re-watching that today, and to get rid of him, you were, like, dragging him out of the... 
out of the, the room. And at one point, I think you had your hands on his shoulder and like dragging him out of the yeah. room. And I thought that was hilarious too because yeah. like you have this character who seems to be out of it most of the time and all of a sudden you're like just grabbing and getting him out of the room. I thought that was great. Really, she's kind of slowly slinks her hand out. Those, those, those pink gloves are so lovely on his gray suit and she's just kind of sneaky, you know, like everything she does isn't a rapid movement, but kind of, it's all very sensual and slow and loving and caring and she's just, you know, I don't know, they don't want you there anymore. <laughs> We're done but with that's you. okay. Are you able to take anything from the set, like as a memorabilia? No, the gifts that I would use for my for my rehearsals at home. I have oh, that. That's cool. Nice. <laughs> yeah. And they gave us all a sweater. And ah. actually, they gave us like a, a gorgeous little lunchbox kin. This has been so good to be able to talk to you. And yeah. I, I really love your oh, character. Yeah. And I was rewatching all your scenes today, and I was like, wow, I forgot how good that was, how good this was. And, <laughs> oh. and, and now just you talking about it, yeah, you really do are very physical and how you move and I, I think that it's really special that you shared with us that something that you were very considerate of. Yeah, it's something I wanted to do. As we said, you know, if it's a small part, if you've limited dialogue on, on the script, you got to speak with your body. I like sending a message with everything I do art-wise and I feel with her I wanted to really express the message of love hmm. and awe and appreciation. My mother has always taught me to be very appreciative of the small things in life. I mean, she blows my mind with how appreciative she is of the smallest of things, the biggest of things. And that, in a way, what candy is. And I think the world would be a happier place if people were more enthusiastic and happy and grateful for what we have. I mean, David's a genius. I mean, David and, and Mark, they're geniuses. They <laughs> Just are. little things. But he doesn't have a finger sandwich. I mean, come on. They need to be out there more. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Amy. We really loved talking with you. It was it was something special. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Brian. I appreciate you. Okay, weren't they just delightful? It's it's great to always hear from Sabrina and Amy. I've got to tell you, we have a little bit of extra time here, so I thought maybe I'd take some calls. We have the best viewers out there that there are, and they always have some great questions and comments. So let's start out here with caller number one. Are you there? Thanks, Scott, for picking me. My name is Tony from Deer Meadow. It's a first-time caller, but I've been a long-time watcher. Well, actually, I've been calling many times, but you just picked it up today. Uh, we still on? <laughs> it's a great time to be here around the holiday time. Uh, my question for you is this, and I'll hang up and let you answer. Soon I have to pay my rent. I got my checkbook out, wrote it out, got to the date, and all of a sudden, I'm like, what year is this? Is that a question you can answer? What? No, I can't answer that. I mean, I'm still trying to figure out how's Annie. So, no, let's let's go on to caller number two. Hi, I'm so excited to get to be a caller on the show. My name is Melanie from L.A. I am from out of town. I'm staying at the Great Northern. While the hotel seems clean and reasonably priced, I couldn't help but feel something was off the furniture. Every time I pulled open the nightstand, I swear I heard... Oh, Harry. Man, that caller was a real knob. Let's hope that we get a, a good caller to finish up here. Caller number three, you're on. Uh, oh, sorry, sorry. I was having some coffee. Hi, hi, Scott. Uh, I'm Janet. 
I live on Sycamore Lane, and I just moved to Twin Peaks from Florida, and this was my first Christmas here. I loved the weather and the trees. My only thing is that when I was young, my mom always made creamed corn pudding for Christmas. Why can't I buy creamed corn here? It's really causing me a lot of pain and sorrow. What a newbie. I mean, do you see creamed corn on this plate? All right, let's go to a best of clip. We'll take historian John Thorne, who is the managing editor of the Blue Rose magazine, and then roll right into documentarian Charles D. Lazarica. The Essential Wrapped in Plastic and Blue Rose Magazine. Hey, John. Hey, guys. Good to talk to you. If you're listening to today, it's actually the one-year anniversary of Showtime Season 3, Twin Peaks. So I thought it'd be fun to talk with you about, you know, the year in review. Yeah, that sounds great. It's, it's hard to believe it's been a year. It went by fast. It did. I mean, Very and, and just even building up to this time, it's really exciting that you got to go to the premiere. It was two days before the actual uh, Sunday night premiere. So it was Friday night, the 19th of May. It was the two hour Hollywood premiere in LA, shown on the big screen with the whole cast, well, most of them and the crew and Lynch and Frost. It was amazing. It really was. I forgot Lynch was there too. Of course he was there, but that's kind of crazy to think he was there. And so what, did you get like an email from Mark Frost and say, hey, you want to come along to the premiere? I probably told this story already, but now that a year has passed, I can maybe give you a few more details. I'm not exactly sure how it all came about, somebody asked me on Twitter, I think, have you been invited to the premiere? And I tweeted back and I said, my mailbox is empty as of now, (laughs) whenever this was. And then somebody copied Mark Frost on that and said, Mark Frost, uh, look at this, you know, come on, wrapped in plastic or something, something like that. I saved all the tweets. And uh, I thought that was nice for someone to acknowledge me. And, and I, I don't know if it was within a day, I got an email from Mark Frost uh. that said, since you got to keep this, you know, secret, but I am working hard to get you uh, a ticket. I can get you one ticket and that's it to the premiere in LA. Yeah, of course, you know, my head started spinning <laughs> and I was like, well, I don't believe it. And then uh, I think a day later, I got the official invitation to go and with the NDA that you had to electronically sign and all that. Yeah, that was. I remember very, very clearly the day I got that was May 4th because it was uh, Star Wars Day. So I was like, oh, okay. Uh, you know, I think it's <laughs> so a great May- Star Wars Day present. Yeah. It peaks. <laughs> I think it's so funny, you know, your partner of Blue Rose Magazine, Scott Ryan, you know, so you go, you actually get to go to this event and then you have Scott Ryan kind of like hanging outside of the theater. Yes, I know. Scott taking <laughs> stealthy photos yeah. and kind of McLaughlin and stuff. It was great, actually, because Scott was in LA for a different event. He was oh. there for I think for a Buffy the Vampire Slayer uh, event that was being held on that weekend. So he just happened to be in L.A. And I stayed at the hotel where they actually had the theater attached to for the for the premiere. And they they cordoned off the whole street. So unless you were a guest of that hotel or part of the Twin Peaks premiere, you couldn't get into that street. But because I was a guest, I could get Scott in. And so Scott came in and, and his wife came in. And there outside the hotel, there was a little cafe where you could sit outside and just watch all the actors walk by. And so Scott so cool. was there. It was really great. It was nice he could do that. In fact, I think he may have had more interaction with some of them <laughs> uh, than I did. It was just 
so much fun. It was a, a special time, and and I'm very grateful to Mark Frost for thinking of me and uh, bringing me to that because it yeah it's just something I'll never forget. You know, you waited for over 25 years, and here you are in this theater with all these people who made the new season, and to actually all of a sudden see new footage. I mean, what was that like? I mean. Yeah, it was surreal. I mean, it really wasn't. It was just. It was amazing. Um, I really wasn't sure what to expect either. I, mean, I think we were all in that place because we knew so little about it, and you know, we just didn't know what they were going to do. And I was just open-minded. I said, "Well, whatever it is, it is." And you know, the it started, and suddenly there's this black and white footage of the giant as we knew him and Cooper, and I was like, well, here we go. <laughs> it was mesmerizing. I'd, I'd been thinking about Twin Peaks for so many years, and suddenly to be you know back in the story again, I always also felt a little bit like work too. I and that, hmm. I, I don't mean that in any bad way, but you know, it's like okay, I have to process all, all of this, and I don't know who some of these characters are, and when you've had so many years to think about it, uh, and and you know, study it. Uh, Suddenly, when you're inundated with all this new data, you know, it's a little overwhelming. But, well, it was great. And I'm sure you guys felt the same way when you saw it. Uh, yeah. You yeah. Know, just two days later. It wasn't a reboot, but there still was a concern that like, okay, they're going to water this down so that people who aren't as familiar with Twin Peaks, they're going to get play catch up and they're going to, you know, but it wasn't that. It was like for the true fans. So true. And think back on that Sunday night because we got the two hours that had shown already in LA, but then we got two more hours if you watched it on the streaming service that Showtime had. So in effect, we were getting four new hours of Twin Peaks in one night. That, I think, was a decision of Showtime's part because I think, which is just what you're saying, Ben, is that the show wasn't holding anybody's hands. It yeah. really kind of dumped mm. you in. And if you were familiar with Twin Peaks, you probably were okay. But if you thought, I'm going to check this out and see what it is. <laughs> well, I watched the show once a long time ago right. and I, I'll see what's going on. I think Showtime was hoping you'd stick through to uh, part four yes, so that some of what you might have remembered if you were casual fan would start to come you know to make some sense or appeal to you yeah that was a lot to take in in one night right. four hours yeah. and so brian you only watched the, the two hours and because you wanted to watch it week yeah, to week i did which is cool i yeah, think that was great yeah. i couldn't wait i waited too long i waited over 25 years i couldn't wait i did watch four hours it was a bad the next day was pretty bad for me because <laughs> so john i mean we, we a fan and myself we come into the studio to record Ben already knows three and four. He's like, I can't say, I can't say. And I'm like, all right, I'm trying to be a purist here. I just want to take it in. Enjoy in chunk, it, enjoy. Yeah, yeah, because I I felt personally, I'd be like, next week, I'm not going to have anything to look forward to. And granted, I will look forward to it even though I saw it, but it won't be a surprise. Yeah. I already know it. And then a friend of mine came into our studio that was doing something else. He watched all four episodes, and then he's about to talk about it, and we're like, no, I didn't watch it. And he's like, why? And he's yelling at me. Why didn't you watch It was a rough day and afterwards. You were, you, you were staying away from social media for the week. Yeah, you? I didn't yeah. go on social media at all. I'm not sure it was the best decision on Showtime's part, and it's a year later, and I don't yeah. think there's anybody there who's, who's going to get upset at you know uh, saying that. But I stayed up late to watch it, and I, I to be honest with you, you know, I was just so tired. Of course, I'd been flying, I'd yeah. been back and forth to L.A., and I was just like, what's going on? <laughs> it was a lot to process, and if you were processing it late at night, which I imagine a lot of people were, yeah. I mean, a lot of people, you know, they have kids, they got to get them to bed, and so they're staying up late to watch this. And if you're up till one, two a.m., and you've got to get up early the next day, it was a lot to take in. I just had to. Re- 
rewatch three and four pretty much quickly after I had seen them to really get what was going on. Yeah, I mean, I mean, not that I could get it, but to see where the story was going. Yeah, I, I think on Showtime, I think it's a business. It was a business thing and going with the times. It was like right. week to week. But hey, we can get you to get onto our streaming service. That's we're going to yeah. use the show to sell it. And for the younger crowd who likes to binge things. You get right. to binge four episodes, and this is nothing yeah, for you mm-hmm. because you do it all the time, yeah. you know? So I kind of look at it like there's so many factors that Showtime was using, you know, a younger generation and the older crowd and different types, and it worked, yeah. I guess. Yeah. They were doing their best to build an audience for that, and it was a tough thing to do because it had been 25 years, and series was it a event. limited series event? Was yes. that what the, yes. now what the Blu-ray is called? Right. They didn't call it season three. They didn't want to call it season three. Right. The return. Because the yeah. return, of course. They called it the return and the and the Blu-ray is called the limited series event. And no one wants to call it season three, but I believe Sabrina Sutherland and David Lynch call it season three, and that's right. kinda how well, I they think just about call it. Or you and Mark Frost, they call it Twin Peaks. Yeah. yeah. They haven't even ever said well, it's right. a season, which sure. is kind of confusing too. <laughs> but yeah. John, I remember you saying that you were gonna watch it by yourself. Pretty much was that true week to week? Did you pretty it was just you watching it with no one else? Oh, my wife and I yeah. watched it. You know, she's she was was there at the beginning when we were watching Twin Peaks way back when, and she was really into it as well. Uh, and so, yeah, it was just the two of us. You know, I couldn't get my kids to watch it. My kids are pretty much grown, but you know, I'm interested in it, so yeah. they're not. And uh, that's the way that was going to go. <laughs> the only time I watched it with a group was uh, obviously I, I saw it you know with a bunch of people in LA but then I did see I think it was part 12 at the Palmer House Mary and Tim Reaver's house in Everett Washington and I was with a small group of diehard fans there and saw an episode on Sarah Palmer's TV which was really really <laughs> Really cool. Very was, meta. And I'm trying to remember, there was a Sarah Palmer scene in that episode. And Hawk shows up. Right. It, was, it was absolutely surreal, yeah, yeah because yeah. we hadn't seen much of the house up till then. And I had never been to the house. That was the uh, first time I had ever been. And so I went up the stairs and through the door and I'm looking around and we sat down to watch the show. And then in the show, Hawk pulls up outside and comes up the stairs and knocks on the door. And, you know, you almost wanted to turn to the door. To, you know, see, he's really here. You know, it's just another great experience of being able to see Twin Peaks in a really unique way. Thank you, John. Hey, John. Hey. You're an award-winning American documentarian. You're a filmmaker. You're a DVD Blu-ray producer. I mean, you've done things with, uh, like, the box set for Blade Runner and Alien, and you really have done some amazing work. And I'm so glad that we get to talk to you about your Twin Peaks. I'm really excited about uh, this this new release, and I've been enjoying reading all the reactions to it. Um, it's a lot of fun. And you've been a, a fan of David Lynch's for a long time, haven't you? Can you tell us a little about, like, when you first got into David Lynch? Well, I think the first time I remember even recognizing David Lynch as an as a artist and as a filmmaker was probably The Elephant Man, because I was, uh, I mean, I was a little kid when it came out, but I, I remember seeing it. Strangely, I think I saw it around the same time as the Blues Brothers, like on the same day, I think. Wow. I saw the Brothers and Elephant Man, two very different movies, but it was the first time, because as a kid, you know, you see movies for fun, you go to be entertained and laugh and cheer and all that, and The Elephant Man is the first time I cried at a, at a movie. So it really had a powerful impact on me. Uh, it was such a beautiful film with such dignity and such kind of like dark beauty to it but it was also you know an exquisitely made movie and i was just instantly intrigued by this filmmaker and then of course as you know given the, the period i grew up in the 70s and 80s you just kept seeing people wearing t-shirts with this eraser head guy on it and you start <laughs> wondering, 
you start wondering what that's all about, you know, and I did, and I just slowly became, became interested in, in David's work. And, uh, and believe it or not, I actually really loved uh, Dune when it came out. A lot of people love to criticize that film, but I think more and more people are starting to realize that it's, it's aging very well, that movie. And it's mm, so incredibly well made. Um, it just, you know, you wish that nowadays they could maybe go back and just do a, a little bit of a polish on it technically. But I, I think that uh, God, in terms of world building, it's it's really second to none. I mean, that's just an incredible experience. So that's kind of how I, I began to take notice of David. But then, of course, the I think the, the one that just blew my mind was was Blue Velvet. From that point on, I, I think I understood what language he was speaking as a filmmaker, and I understood what types of movies uh, and stories to not not expect, but like kind of how to prepare myself when I was going into these movies. That, that was kind of the beginning for me. Cool. And I heard that you were part of the college newspaper, and you actually got to interview the cast of Twin Peaks. Can, can oh, you share wow. that with us? That's cool. I was at uh, Glendale Community College in California, and I was uh, on the newspaper staff. And and again, having been a fan of David's, I, I heard that you know he had a, this new TV show that was in the works, and I actually got tickets to an early screening of the pilot. Um, it was I can't remember how far in advance of the the you know the air date it was, but it was it was a bit before it was actually on television. So I got to like brag about it for a while to my friends, like, oh my god, you're not going to believe this thing I saw. And so instantly, like from from day one, I was a Twin Peaks maniac. Uh, I was a Peaks freak, and I just uh, <laughs> loved it. And I taped every episode on VHS. I still have those in a box somewhere in my garage. And I was really into it. And I read the you know the Diary of Laura Palmer, and I and I just devoured that. And so in between seasons, in between season one and two. There was a charity benefit for this organization called Tree People, and it was held at Union Station in downtown Los Angeles, which is the, the famous train station where they shot Blade Runners, the police station, right? Yeah. So um, they had this party there, and a huge amount of the cast was there. Uh, Mark Frost was there. I don't think David was there. But yeah, everyone was there, and they were sort of like in the – it was in the, the glow of love uh, for the show because it was between those two seasons. So uh, it was very exciting to go. And completely like uh, unauthorized, I went in with my little tape recorder, and I just, <laughs> I just started walking up to various people and – interviewed them for my college newspaper. Uh, I interviewed Kyle McLaughlin, Ray Wise, Jack Nant, Dan Ashbrook, and uh, James Marshall, and Richard Boehmer, and I go on and on, Cheryl Lee. You know, I was very nervous. I was very, you know, <laughs> I, I felt like I, I shouldn't have been doing what I was doing, but I did, and I and I recorded some really fun, quick interviews with all these people. And then it was in my college paper, and I became sort of like the de facto Twin Peaks expert at my college, basically. And I wrote a few articles about the show during its run. But uh, yeah, that was an amazing night. And, and, and a really quick side story about that night, they had a contest uh, to guess who the killer was. Now, mm. keep in mind, between season one and two, but it was after Laura's Diary had come out, which I had read. Yeah. And so I, I, I felt like I had a pretty good handle on who the killer was. But th the contest was basically, you know, write your name down and your contact info and who you think the killer is. And I, so I did. And I put down, spoilers, Leland Palmer, right? <laughs> and, and again, it was mostly out of the diary that I came up with that. Wow. So, and I actually, when I, when I interviewed Ray Wise that night, I, I said, and this is like the first time the public has seen him with the white hair. Um, I asked him, I said, you know, I read the diary and I think you're the killer. And, and he just kind of like laughed. <laughs> like, I'm, not, I'm not even sure he knew exactly, but he was like, yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. Like, oh. he was like he thought I was trying to like nail him on it, but and so years later, when I shot the you know his interview for the Secrets from Another Place documentary, I, I told him that story that, that that I wrote him down as the killer, and uh, and months later they called me up and I had won, but I didn't know what the prize was. The prize was they they, they called me and they said. Hey, you're the winner of the romantic dinner with your dream killer. Uh, <laughs> 
contest. And I said, what? And I said, they said, yeah, you get a romantic dinner with Ray White. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I, and I told, I told Ray that story and he was like, man, I'm glad you didn't collect that, that prize. So um, that would have been very awkward, but yeah, that, that was, that, that was that event that you asked about. Yeah, That's awesome. That is an so odd, cool. you're going to eat dinner with the killer. Yeah. It yeah. seems so and bizarre. It's romantic too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's been a little over 10 years ago. I can't believe that the, the gold box there came out that you produced. I'd love to know how this all came about how did you get involved with this dvd set you know I'd, I'd produced several other box sets by that point and um i was working with cbs on this show called numbers that was on for seven seasons i produced the you know like the behind the scenes extras for that and someone at at cbs named trisha gum um she told me uh that twin peaks the rights to twin peaks went to cbs she was like she's their one of their attorneys and she says that they got the rights to it and um i said great i'd love to somehow be involved and so basically i wrote a proposal and it was accepted and uh i was off and running basically off, right just like that you know it was, it was just a matter of showing my passion and interest and ideas but mostly it was i think having a, a sense of the show because i was such a huge fan of it and knowing it's kind of i'm not gonna say troubled history on home video but it's a very unusual yeah. history like who who owned what and when and what was released in what territory and which version of the pilot and all that. So just having that, that love and knowledge of the show, I think helped me. But uh, yeah, I was, I remember I was in New York working on another project and I, and I had to have my first phone call with David Lynch. And, um, you know, again, very, I was very scared because I wanted to impress him, but I also wanted to let him know that I wasn't going to try to, you know, demystify or devalue the, the sort of like the, the, the dreamy uh, world of, of Twin Peaks. I was, I didn't want to like, do one of these massive, like, you know, film school in a box deconstructions, which, mm. which gives away all the secrets. I was, I was very much about keeping the secrets as, as much as he wanted them kept. So, you know, it was just, it was the beginning of a process and I just did my usual thing, which was kind of a, it's almost journalistic where you just, you track people down, you interview them and they tell the stories and you just listen and you follow up with questions. If they, if they come up with something interesting that you didn't know, or maybe has a different take on something you did know, you, you know, you follow that down its rabbit hole and, and, and kind of figure out, okay, is that a story I need to ask someone else about? Mm. And that's how these, that's how these documentaries develop is you wow. just listen, you listen and you ask and you listen and you ask. And that was how the secrets from another place documentary kind of started to come together. And I, it's so good. And, and you got to interview Mark Frost, which I don't think in the, any of the other DVDs had anything with oh, Mark wow. Frost. And so it, was, it definitely felt like Mark and David's uh, DVD. Like, I don't know. It, you did such great work with getting the people and getting to talk with Mark. Well, uh, you know, it was between uh, myself and my, my associate producer, Amy Lowe. It was between the two of us. We just kind of spread the, the net out pretty wide to try to interview as many people as we could. Because one thing you have to keep in mind, at the same time that I was working on the Twin Peaks Gold Box, I was also working on the big five-disc Blade Runner set. Wow. Like, wow. like simultaneously. In fact, <laughs> I don't know how much you guys know or care about the Blade Runner final cut, but, you know, we had to go in and redo some material. Like, we fixed a lot of continuity problems and when we shot joanna cassidy as zora in blade runner in front of a green screen to oh like replace God. her replace her face in this oh, one wow i didn't know and, that well that was shot i think it was the day before or the day after we shot a slice of lynch uh that piece from the from the gold box so it was like i was i was literally jumping between two worlds no pun intended between, <laughs> between blade awesome. runner and, and twin peaks yeah know? 
Um, so it was, a, it, was a, it was a really it was a crazy time, but it was a fun time. I, yeah. it, was, it was like my favorite movie, my favorite TV show, back to back. It was pretty amazing. That's something. And you mentioned Slice of Lynch, your other documentary. I mean, I love the atmosphere that you guys were in. I, is it Bigfoot Lodge that you guys filmed in? I think I'd heard. And yeah, that's right. It's it's the Bigfoot Lodge East, which is on Los Feliz in uh, in LA. Um, and interestingly, when we were shooting interviews for um, Secrets from Another Place, Michael Horse's interview was shot at Bigfoot Lodge in San Francisco. So it's kind of like this re- recurring Bigfoot Lodge theme, just because it looks is a very Twin Peaksy, you know, location. So theme to work. Did you do all the packaging and since the menus and all the, I mean, everything that comes with the DVD, like besides the documentary, like you know, it's it's case by case. In the case yeah. of in the case of Goldbox, I was very involved with the menus. And I was very involved with the packaging. In fact, uh, I took a pass at the packaging itself. The back of the Goldbox I designed. Uh, because it was just like there was so much material, and Ken Ross, who's the the, the head of CBS Home Entertainment, who's just been a great friend and an ally, and he loves Twin Peaks. He's been a major defender for that, and just he always fights for the best for Twin Peaks. He would often consult with me about menus and packaging and and, and release strategy and you know promotional things. So he's he's been very generous and very kind to involve me. Just to have that extra fan perspective and also someone who's, you know, been in the home video business for a while. It's like, I have a perspective that might help out in a way that others don't, you know, but, um, yeah, but like in that one, I, I helped out on, on pretty much everything. Um, the, uh, the complete mystery, the entire mystery, I keep forgetting which word it is. Cause it went, it went back and forth. A yeah. Lot it's kind of both <laughs> the entire mystery missing and the missing pieces. <laughs> but yeah, it was, it was kind of the same thing. That one, I wasn't involved in the packaging, but I, but I was, uh, you know, helpful, you know, with, I tried to be helpful with the menus and then the same on the new set. I just consulted with Ken and he would show me things and, you know, we would just talk about what, what David might want, what the fans might want, what's good for the show, what's yeah. good for everybody. And, you know, you have these conversations and sometimes they come to pass and sometimes it's something entirely different. Yeah. And with the gold box, it was so professional. I remember getting that and saying, wow, the, the, the production value of this, just in the menus and the way it was done, it was, you did an incredible job with that. It, it really was something. Well, you know, that was the, the, the thing was just trying to keep it, keep the mystery alive, um, but also, you know, set, set the stage. You know, I think the best DVD and Blu-ray menus are those that are, they're almost like the, like the pre-show at a Disneyland ride, you know, where it's not the ride itself, but it's immersing you in the world. Yeah. And, and I kind of feel like that's what, we, what I always try to push for on menus is to create an immersive experience, which just kind of prepares you. It's almost like, you know, like when you have an overture or an intermission during a long movie, it's like, this is the overture. This is just kind of like, okay, everyone's going to sit down. They're going to get ready. They're going to start to hit play soon. So get them, you know, up to speed, up to, up to the, the kind of like the flavor of the, Mealer about that. No. Yeah, that's cool. Well, Charles, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, I really am it. so impressed with all the work you've done with Twin Peaks. I mean, I'm always impressed that every time I think I've seen your work, it's like gets better and better. I think. I mean, I think this newest piece that you've done with the voiceovers and how you've arranged it and structured it is is really something. So, thank you so much for all you've done on on the the Blu-ray and and thank you for your time. Thank you for the, the kind words. Um, I'm, I'm glad you like it. I'm glad you didn't hate it. I'll put it that way. <laughs> I liked it a lot. These are some great best of clips. Absolutely loving it. We will be right back with the greatest TV show since Invitation to Love. The Black is Midnight on a Moonless Late Night Show with Scott Ryan. The Inland Empire Cyclopedia of Obscure Phraseology defines Counter Esperanto as, noun, one, 
a highly stylized shorthand jargon and common usage between waitress and short order cook in all the best film noir cafe scenes. A typical example would sound something like, Hey Mac, burn one, run it through the garden, and pin a rose on top while I slop some Frenchman's Delight and a hot blonde with sand. Which would translate to, Would you please make a hamburger with all the toppings, including sliced tomato, while I serve a bowl of pea soup and a cup of coffee with milk and sugar? 2. Regional Bureau Chief Gordon Cole's personal euphemism for flirting with waitstaff, made famous by the following exchange. That's the kind of girl to make you wish she spoke a little French. Excuse me, Coop, while I try my hand at a little counter Esperanto. Three, an irregularly released labor of love type podcast by two Twin Peaks superfans who use their love of that Lynchian masterwork as the center of a circle from which tangents intersect with the host's eclectic canon of surrealistic horror, eerie fantasy, and the weird at large. Buy your copy of the Inland Empire Cyclopedia of Obscure Phraseology today. The book is readily available at Acres of Books in Long Beach, Cody's Books in San Francisco, the world-famous Book Row in New York City, just around the corner from The Box, any Walden Books location, and wherever fictional books are sold. Counter Esperanto the Podcast is available through iTunes or whatever your favorite podcatcher app might be. <sighs> What's wrong? Oh, I'm just really tired these days. I know how you feel. Have you tried coffee? Nah, this isn't the kind of tired coffee can fix. Well, what about Sparkle? Sparkle? What's that? Sparkle's the new name in Waking Up With A Charge. Available in powder or pill form, Sparkle has a real kick that keeps you going no matter what the day has in store. Based on the newest innovations in biomedical engineering from the Far East, it will give you that dose of energy you need to sparkle throughout your day. Sparkle may have some side effects, including impaired mental judgment, rashes, hallucinations, travel to parallel dimensions, sudden intercorporeal coin appearances, ominous ethereal whooshing, occasional backward stalking, and the sense that one is beating themselves. And the sense that one is beating themselves. In rare cases, users may experience zombie-like behavior, including bleeding from the mouth and other orifices. Users should refrain from operating a motor vehicle until they feel comfortable using Sparkle. Always check to ensure Sparkle won't interact with any other medication you may be taking. Not recommended for pregnant or nursing women. Check your local Sparkle distributor to ensure Sparkle is right for you. Wow, this Sparkle is really something. I almost feel like I'm going to another place altogether. Alright, we're back. And we were hoping to have Deputy Andy on, but I guess he's carrying around some naked woman around the woods. Nothing to see there. So instead, we're going to take a listen to Jennifer Lynch talk about Boxing Helena and reporter JC from 25 Years Later, who talks about how she got involved in 25 Years Later and the Bookhouse Babes. Take a listen. So, yeah, we wanted to have you on the show because it's the 25th anniversary of Boxing Helena. That's so exciting. Can you believe that? I cannot believe it. <laughs> I, it must make us all feel old. I know. I can't believe it's I know. I, I, I was going to have to mention that, uh, you know, it, it's weird because I feel like I haven't aged. Yeah. Um, until I hear something like, it's the 25th anniversary of Boxing Helena. <laughs> <laughs> you actually wrote this when you were 19, didn't you? I did. Wow. Can you share with us how this all came about? Absolutely. Well, I was approached at a poetry reading uh, that I read at regularly, and a gentleman asked if I was interested in writing a screenplay. You know, it was, it was not a great uh, storyline. Hmm. A man's so in love with a woman that he removes her appendages and puts her in a box to have sex with her. Yeah, not a good um, <laughs> it, it didn't really sound like my cup of tea. But what did sound like my cup of tea 
was a fairy tale about obsessive love and the removal of things that would take someone away from you. Mm-hmm. And so a story was created based on my own feelings about the Venus de Milo. My grandmother had a replica in her house, and I was often set down at the base of it uh, in my uh, casts. Mm-hmm. I had club feet as a baby. And I remember seeing people walk past me and look at her as if she was beautiful, even though she was broken. And the idea that she had no arms and could not move um, was sort of a seed in my head about how maybe... Nick in Boxing Helena might feel that that if he had that statue, it was the only thing that didn't strike him or walk away from him. And uh, so I had him create this sort of love story around replicating that. And of course, once he realized that the only way this woman would love him is if he basically disassembled her, that was no longer what he wanted. And uh, he awoke from the dream. That's really wow. cool. You know, your father used the Venus del Milo in the Red Room. Do you think he could have been inspired by your, your grandmother's statue as well, or he just... It's certainly a possibility. Yeah. Certainly a possibility. What does that statue symbol mean to you? Uh, to me, it means that um, even if we are broken, we can still be beautiful. Oh, hmm. very nice. And, and loved, you know what I mean? That, that it is not perfection that makes us lovable. Something else entirely. Yeah. Yeah. It's nice. And I'm curious about the timeline. Like, I always just thought, oh, you you wrote the Secret Diary of Laura Palmer, and that made you became successful. And then people were like, we want you to make a movie. But this all took. (laughs) I don't know. But but actually, you were working on this screenplay well before Twin Peaks, right? I mean, this is some. Yeah. So that is really something. And then how did you get to uh, start directing this? Um, After having written it, uh, the people who read it. Uh, said, you know, you, you need to direct this. And uh, that had not occurred to me while writing it. I don't know quite why, but I guess at that point I was still feeling that words and paintings were my heart. And I think that a sense of, of a maternal love for the project and an understanding that it could go terribly wrong if it became a horror film mm-hmm. um, made me want to take care of it as best I could. And I think I had the same feeling that my father expresses that he had, which was the words and the paintings can move if you make them a film. I was willing to take the leap because I cared so much for this tiny story. I think that hindsight being twenty twenty. If I knew then what I know now, I would have said, uh, are you crazy? <laughs> and I didn't. Right. And here we are now. Yeah. So, yeah. And I imagine <laughs> it helped to be hanging around a set um, when you were growing up and, and that you actually did work on some of your dad's films. Did that- Absolutely. I had worked on basically all of them. The set is my happy place. If I could live on a set, I would. I consider it one of the most magical places someone can be. You know, at 19, it felt strange to be thinking, I am also a director. And and not that I was told to not feel that way. I just didn't on my own until I found that in doing it, I was home. I didn't realize that you had you were part of Blue Velvet, that you actually was an... I think were, were you, you were assistant to them, an uncredited yeah, assistant? Yeah, I, I was a production assistant. Yeah. Yeah, and I was also, much like Eraserhead, I was actually in a scene in Blue Velvet and was cut out. So it's my first time seeing Boxing Line. I just watched it this past weekend. Oh, my goodness. And no, I, <laughs> me and my wife, we watched it. My big question is this. Nick's mom was very fickle towards him. Was that the attraction to Helena? Because Helena pushed him away. So yes. the question is, is the dream a mix of his feeling towards his mom and Helena? A hundred percent. I think that 
and he, his mother's love was something he was always trying to get and his presence alone upset her and made her feel unhappy so he was familiar with being looked at that way by a woman he loved mm. but he also yearned to have the attention of that woman you know she was as vicious as helena to him it was familiar yeah it was interesting the takeaway of what my wife had and I had, but we both enjoyed it for what it was. Bless We're like, your hearts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, she had a different takeaway, and it was funny because I was so into the, the main story, what was going on. I, I forgot about the very beginning about him as a boy. And my wife just says, well, it's because the mom was fickle and that's why I'm like, oh, yeah, like it didn't hit me. Like I was like, oh, I got it now. And she's like, weren't you paying attention? I'm like, I was, but I forgot. Uh, I just want to tell you, the wife sounds awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and you were saying to me before that your wife wasn't sure about the ending because it's a dream. Yeah, she, you know, her takeaway was, well, it was a dream. So I don't know how much I like that. And I was just like, well, I get it because it had to be a dream. Dream. I was like, if it wasn't a dream, it would have been very weird. You can't just exactly. take someone's arms and legs off and no blood. And she didn't use the bathroom. She didn't have a catheter. Nothing. <laughs> I was like thinking, I'm like, it's a film, bro. I know. But I'm like, it makes more sense as a dream. So yeah. her takeaway was, well, I, I was, she wasn't too thrilled with the dream aspect. Other than that, she liked it. And I was like, I like the dream aspect. To me, it made perfect sense. Well, and I knew I was stepping in something sticky. When I, you know, decided that's how it had to end. People uh, frown upon that. And I knew that. But what was true for me was, first of all, what you said, which was, in no world is it okay that someone removes another person's arms and legs and, you know, entraps them in an mm. attempt to get their love. It's just not okay. Not <laughs> yeah. No. yeah. And as well, I was raised in a home where dreams were things that taught us and gave us other ideas and allowed us to do things we otherwise could not do. Yeah. So I never had the, oh, what a fucking bummer. It's a dream. What a cop out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, but the rest of the world definitely, and I had to acknowledge this, definitely experiences that way. Mm. But the way I could sleep at night was by saying, I often have dreams where one minute someone or something is there that I covet. Mm. And I, I suddenly realized that something that would have made it go away is gone. And that is the magic of my dream. What I wanted to do was say, this is a fairy tale. Yeah. about a lost Prince Charming and a scarred Snow White. And what is the best way to tell a fairy tale but in very simple beats that are about a lesson? And the lesson mm. is you do not gain someone's love by stealing it. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Right. It, it's almost a metaphor. You know, I was also thinking like of uh, if you're in a bad relationship, you're in um, a toxic relationship where the person who's a toxic person sometimes will try to steal, in a sense, not your limbs, but try to make you lose your family or friends to totally gain hobble you yes keep you away from others stop you from going out stop yeah you from being you or your full self and so in that it is a metaphor yeah that's you know, the, the the lessening and the hobbling of someone else so that you can control them or feel that they won't go away our fear of abandonment is intense mm -hmm. and that was really what nick lived with he wanted so much to not have people push him away or to go away and he wanted to be seen and loved yeah. And the minute she says, I love you, the minute she says it, he's got to wake up hmm, because yeah. it crushes him. He realizes that once her old boyfriend has come in, Ray, and says, oh, my God, you're you're a fucking monster. Yeah. He sees in her eyes what he's done. 
Yeah. Wow. And I ju- and I knew it was a risk. I knew. You know what I mean? I also thought this would be a movie five people would see and I hope three would like it. <laughs> I had no idea it was going to become what it became. How to convey something at a dinner party and yet you have no idea that dinner party is being filmed and broadcast hmm. via satellite. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I admittedly, I feel I did the very best I could at that time to tell that story. Certainly were I to tell it again today, I might make different choices. But I do feel like the people with whom I made that film and all of the struggles we went through, it was an incredible bonding experience. And for its time, I think, was a really good challenge for me to be a part of. Can you share with us anything that you are working on right now? I am um, directing the hell out of television. (laughs) I'm writing another feature. And um, I'm not allowed to talk about it specifically, but I have a new television series that uh, I'll be – a very big part of in the spring. Exciting. That's exciting. You know, yes. b- before we let you go, I just wanted to say my favorite episodes that you directed of The Walking Dead. Oh, um, I'm so glad. <laughs> when I saw your name, I think you did one of the first episodes of one of the seasons of mid-season, and it was like the the table, it was like a long shot, had the table, and you just let it play out. Mm. And I'm like, this Aww. was, it was perfect <laughs> for that type of show. And then I see your name again show up in season two of Jessica Jones. And I'm like, oh my uh-huh. God, you're everywhere. You're everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've just been having such a good time working in television. I really have. And I have learned so much about so much. Yeah. And now um, have the opportunity after all these years to... Uh, help develop and create a show that I get to be a part of of my own. So it's, uh, yeah, it's really exciting. And I do think that film is is, uh, on its way back as far as uh, things other than the blockbusters. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that for now there is a a tremendous gift in television because great ideas are being expressed, beautiful stories are being told, and the, the level of voyeurism in one's own home, the idea that these people now are in our bedrooms is uh, really an interesting tool to use in the in this telling of things. Totally. So, yeah. you know, knowing that people might be in their underwear when they're watching is something <laughs> that I like to keep in mind. <laughs> That's awesome. I'm so excited to hear this because, you know, Mike, one of my questions was, I'm like, you should be directing a whole series of something or you should be part of a TV because right. you're so good so, at oh, those episodes. So American Horror <laughs> Story, you. you did the final episode of last season yeah. and that yep, was fantastic. I just finished another one of this season. Ooh, wow. that's, a, that's yeah. a great series. So we'll, we'll yeah. get you back on the show again. We got to talk more. Yeah, we want to talk the Laura Palmer's secret diary with yes. you. Oh, I would what? love to talk about that. Thanks. I really, really would. Well, thank you so much, Jen, for your time yeah. and, and, and happy 25th anniversary. Thank you so much, and and, uh, I cannot tell you what it means to me to have you guys want to talk to me, and and, uh, I think that uh, you've just made my day. I really appreciate it. And you made our day. Yeah, you made our our week. (laughs) This was amazing. (laughs) JC, you're involved with 25 Years Later site, and you're involved with the book house, Babes. Yes. Do you want to tell us, do you want to start with 25 Years Later? Let's start with 25 Years Later, which is, uh, I can't ask for a better group of people to be writing with. Um, I wrote, and you know, I wrote on my own blog and sort of stuff, and and I wrote some Twin Peaks things when when the return started, and then it was, I think it was August, I... um, Andrew and Lindsay put out on Twitter that they were looking for writers for the Black Lodge, White Lodge debate Hmm. group. And so I I wrote to them and I said, you know, I, you know, this is what I do. And I sent them and and Lindsay goes, okay, you're in. 
and and Andrew, you're in. Okay, good. And I started doing some debates. And then I, I said, well, I have this piece I want to write. What do you think? And Andrew's like, go ahead and do it. And it was my love letter to Dougie. And that piece itself was phenomenal because I, I wrote it and it really came from the heart because I was a believer that Cooper was always behind there, even, you know, mm. even before we knew and then got the, you know, the I am the FBI and all that. <laughs> uh-huh. So so I wrote this and I put it out there. And, you know, of course, they, we sent it into Twitter land and Facebook land. And then something told me and I don't know why, but I was following Mark Frost and I'm like, tag Mark Frost in this. Just just tag it. See, you know, maybe we'll read it. Maybe it won't. Hurt. Well, all of a sudden, I'm at my, my desk at work, and, and my phone blows up, and, and Andrew's like, go look at Twitter, go look at Twitter. And I'm like, okay, okay. And I go on Twitter, and it's like, Mark Frost, really lovely, and it's my article. And I'm just wow. like, wait, really lovely. That means he actually probably read it. That's crazy. And it wow. was just crazy. And I'm like, okay, okay, you know, nothing else is going to top this right now. I'm like, that. I got the seal of approval from Mark Frost. So that kind of started, and then I started writing more and more, and we got into you know more theory pieces. Most of my pieces were more character, like kind of character love letters. I'll say it. And then we got into the reincarnation thing that kind of happened by default. John the Peaky, he um, he and I were going back and forth. He's like, "You got to write this. This is good stuff." And then and then it started. I said, "All right, I'll do a, 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 a you know a trio of articles, and we'll go from there." And then we have the Bookhouse Babes, and I'm going to tell you, like the first time I heard of the Bookhouse Babes, it's like there's some sexist guy who decided to make this name up, and he's <laughs> such a jerk that he would he would he was like, "Oh, Babes Bookhouse," as a play on the Bookhouse Boys. Uh-huh. And then I realized it was women who were putting this together. It's like, "Oh, wow, this is strong women, and they're taking yeah. the hold of this name and it's." Did it happen this year? It happened this year, yeah. And it happened like at the end of the run. Amanda Dugan, who became my friend via Twitter, we both of us po- would post similar things and we would tag Showtime and, and Showtime mm. would retweet stuff. And then we became we, we followed each other and she was like nonstop. And I'm like, do, do you have a job? <laughs> like I said, at one point she does. She has a really important job, too, which is kind of ironic. Mm. But um. But we would talk back and forth, her and I, and we call him the Knight of the Bookhouse Babes now because he's mm. been a big proponent of what we're doing and tries to tag us and stuff and very, cool. you know, pro. But we had some, at the beginning of starting this whole thing, we had some negativity. We had, mm. well, why is it just women? And it's like, you know, did, you know, what about guys? And I'm like, you have yours. It's called the Bookhouse Boys. <laughs> I hate when that happens. Like, I'm like, I'm not trying thing. to be mean yeah. about it, but I'm yeah, like, right. you know, we're just doing it. And then, so then Amanda and I thought, and, and we were actually asked by somebody who I want to be a part but I'm not afraid I can be part because I don't want to take away from what you guys are doing because mm-hmm. um, I, I can't think of the word at the moment what, what yeah. am I saying like you know like Inclus- transgendered so, inc- oh, so he, he, yes you're including of me and uh-huh. wrote us a private message and I was really touched and Amanda goes no we're, we're very so we said alright that's it it's just going to be a group of Twin Peaks fans mm-hmm. that still want to keep that magic alive and mm-hmm. want mm-hmm. to be a part of a fun community that's supportive mm-hmm. and we're supportive of artists and we're supportive of writers and we're supportive of anybody who wants to be supported by Twin Peaks. Yeah. And so we changed it to that and we wanted to do more community-based stuff. The original idea for the Bookhouse Babes was like, okay, we're going to try to do t-shirts and we're going to give the proceeds all to David Lynch Foundation. And mm. then we're like, okay, and then Amanda found Cafe Press and like, oh, we could do mugs and we could do this. We're still working on that because it's it's more technical than we yeah. thought. Yeah. But we want to give all the proceeds to David Lynch Foundation because it is a very important you know, mm-hmm. foundation and, mm. and we believe in it and we thought it'd be nice. And then I said, well, maybe we can expand it to even other actors, charities, because Kyle's, you know, in, 
involved with his wife's on the board of um, God's Love We Deliver or something, and it and it delivers food to families in um, the New York City cool. area. Yeah, and so uh, and then we thought, okay, Peggy Lumpton's into environmental causes and you know stuff. Maybe we could nice. choose something to kind of do that. We want to do stuff like that. We want to bring more community together. We want to do you know like community meetups. Uh-huh. Like we, I I talk all the time to everybody who's in NYC because there's quite a few people. Yep. And all the time we're like, hey, we got to do this or hey, we got to meet up. So this is the year. Like I keep getting yelled at by one one of the girls um brett um she she all the time and she's she's a huge like if kyle has a wine tasting she's like there's a wine tasting i'm like and i can't go ah, that's our life she, she got i was sick as a dog and i'm like i cannot get on a train to come and she's like i'm gonna get kyle to say hi to the babes i'm gonna ah, or, and, or i I'm saw gonna that say, yes <laughs> yes and she and she tried to get him to say jen uh-huh. but he thought she said gin and drink gin so he goes and drink gin so oh. i joke that that's my new nickname from kyle now i get gin. it because i watched the video yes okay so that's she was trying to say and jen and when she said <laughs> he thought she said and gin, and gin. Oh. so you know he tried but it was great and i yeah. thought that was great and she got him to do the shout out so he he definitely knows who the babes are and that and, and that's actually how by default we started that's yeah. awesome. Um, I mean, community is amazing for Twin Peaks. Yeah. Oh my God, is. it truly is. So, so going back, so Amanda and I started. What we did was somebody had said to her, "Oh, you should be an honorary bookhouse boy," and it was on a post that Kyle was tagged in. So I said, "Oh, it wouldn't be bookhouse boy. It would be like bookhouse girl or bookhouse lady or bookhouse dame." And then I, at the end, I wrote. Or Bookhouse Babe. And she goes, Bookhouse Babes, I like that. And then she posted the one where Kyle goes, who's the babe, you know, to Harry? Yeah. About uh, Josie. Right, right. And I said, yeah, so, and who's the babe? And so, and I'm like, and I'm, and then, of course, we all started joking, Kyle's the babe, da-da-da-da, back and forth, and da-da-da. And it came, <laughs> it went on his thing, but then she wrote me a private message, and she goes, I keep getting messaged by people that we should do this. Hmm. And I said, okay. I said, well, what do you want to do? And she said, well, why don't we, you know, put it out there and start a name, start a Twitter thing, and then we could kind of post what we're posting, but mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. from the Bookhouse Babes account. I said, okay, try it. See where we get. We get 100 followers, great. Well, 100 turned into 500, and 500 <laughs> turned into 1,000. We're now we're at like 2,300 followers. Isn't that wow, awesome? Nice. Yeah, and it just keeps going and going. And the good part about it is, I mean, we're at the tail end. We're now we're at the DVD, and there's really nothing. There's no new Twin Peaks. I mean, yes, yeah. 119 is coming, so that's that'll yep. be good. And will definitely be part of that but um it's just it's it's snowball <laughs> that did this huge thing and and we are now starting a column starting this saturday on 25 years later site it will be the bookhouse babes on saturday nights That's we're taking awesome. over for Lindsay, who was notes from the bookhouse and andrew said well let's keep it in the you know bookhouse realm and we'll do the bookhouse babes so the thought originally was to do it more to be you know we could do a talk about anything twin peaks yeah i think how we're going to start it off how i've decided and amanda and i have kind of gone back and forth a little bit is we're going to showcase some of our babes I want to showcase some of our 25 Years Later site babes mm-hmm. because they really were from the very beginning very supportive. Uh, Laura, Lindsay, and and Eileen. And then interview some of the babes that have been pretty active. Like I know there's, I, I'm sure you've seen her, her art, Lula, from Italy. Oh yeah. my God. I yeah. mean, some of her art, I'm just like in awe. I'm like, where, just is so inspired and it's great. And then and there's a few other artists too that <laughs> Ronaldo, um, I know is going to do something I think with... Laura's going to do a bunch of artists coming up for oh, the site, nice, nice. interview a bunch of the artists. But he ended up coming through with, um, we did the Golden Kyle. I don't know if you saw it. No. Okay. Yeah, the orb with Kyle's oh, head. He okay. did it for the us on the fly. Yes. Yeah, because we wanted to do it for the Golden Globes. I don't think Kyle's seen it yet because it, there hasn't been any kind of, but we keep trying to like, come on, Golden you Kyle. You got to post it the night of the Golden Globes. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think yeah, so. Yeah. I looked at the competition. If he doesn't win, I'm going to revolt because it's like, and people are like, no, you and McGregor. And I'm like, you and McGregor. 
McGregor played two people. Kyle right. McLaughlin played like six. Okay, can we yeah, can yeah. we go with this now? Yeah, 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 yeah. He played an evil son of a gun that I don't think he thought was in him either. I You're think right. David knew it was, but I don't think he. You know, even the evil people that Kyle's played in the past, and and there has been a few. Um, mm. they were never. They were just bad guys. I mean, Mr. C was truly evil incarnate. Yeah. Right. So to embody that and to totally do it in a way where he didn't look like himself. I mean, I go back and watch it now and it still haunts me. Yeah. I'm like, I'm like, and, and because, because you see him as Cooper and you see him as Dougie Coop and you see, and then you see him yeah. as Mr. C and I'm like, that's not him. Like he's right. not in there. Like it's 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 haunting. It's, it's very creepy. impressive. Yeah, yeah, I know. I thought. It, I mean, we had to wait for over twenty five years to see the double, yeah. really. And I kept on thinking, is like, can Kyle pull this off? Like, can he be evil? Because he he's always so charming. And right. Uh -huh. Right. Guy, but yeah, yeah. He did it. I mean, it's he did. And and I think you're right. And he. I and I read an interview. He said twenty five years ago he doesn't know if they did it right afterwards. If he could have pulled off what he pulled mm. off. I think I think life experience and trusting his act and trusting David and, and getting there, I think really allowed yeah. him to kind of, yeah, so yeah. we appreciate all the fans and the community that's the, totally embraced us. I yeah. mean, it's, 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 it's about, fantastic. Yeah, it's about ideas and I love the yeah. theories and I love, that's what I think Lynch has taught me and I think a lot of fans, if you're a true fan of Lynch, you realize it. All opinions matter. I yes. mean, they all, they all make sense and you don't have to like one, but if you don't, Guess what? There's another There's one. There's another right one, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's absolutely. great. I love it. And that I think that's what makes Film Peaks so amazing. It's whatever you want it to be. And you could also follow the babes on Twitter. It's the bookhouse at the bookhouse babes. You could follow yeah. us on Twitter and, and stay tuned for more from the babes as well. And and <laughs> at Saturdays, our column, look for that on 25 Years Later site. So yeah, you could you could find us everywhere. We're gonna be awesome. everywhere. We're gonna take over the world with you love guys. It. Awesome, yeah, awesome. Thank you, Jay Z. <laughs> We're here to have a stupid human trick. So, Deputy Josh, you always keep this secret for me. I'm excited. Is it a juggler, a singer, a dancer? What do you got? Not sure, but the band has prepared a song. We know that he works right here in Twin Peaks at the Roadhouse. You know him. You love him. It's Man Who Sweeps the Floor. Uh, okay, he seems to be uh, sweeping. Yeah, he's... Yeah. Uh, yeah. And he is, um... Looks to me like he is... What would you call that? Sweeping? That is a big pile of dust. I assume at some point... Some... Something's gonna happen? I think this is it. Do we have just... He's... Does he twirl the broom? There's dust swirls. Um... Boy, this is still going on, huh? Long sweep. Right now, this is the only thing on Twin Peaks Unwrapped right now. This right here, this guy sweeping. Uh-huh. I don't think you call that dead air. No, no, it's close, though. It's dying, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> Woo! Um, I don't know how long this is going to go on, but let's roll a clip of musician Christabel and then makeup artist Debbie Zoller, because honestly, this is not sweeping me away.
And you got a few songs yes, out, yes. and one of them being uh, Blue yeah. Rose. Were you inspired by Twin Peaks, <laughs> Alan? Uh, <laughs> a little. Yeah. I don't know. You know, speaking for myself, but, you know, part of what makes Twin Peaks so special is that there's these super vivid, like, elements that... that, that that are iconic. The Blue Rose is so arresting, the idea of it, the enigmatic nature of the Blue Rose. And, you know, and when I think of the Blue Rose, it's, it's just this kind of unattainable, it doesn't actually exist, but there's something about it that's palpable. And kind of just this weeping, kind of epic feeling, and I just went with it. Blue Rose came, um, and I didn't fight it, and uh, it was one of those songs that comes, you know, all at once. Maybe. You know, it's just a month, which sounds pretty like a long time, but for a song for me, to, you know, for all the lyrics and all the melodies to just kind of to pour out in, in that amount of time was really, really beautiful. And then um, I took it to Texas with my songwriting partner and, and we kind of fleshed out this, this waltz feeling with it. And then, and then on set, you know, I, I played it, I played it for David uh, from on my phone and because I just... I wanted to, I was very conscious of wanting to make sure that he didn't feel that I was co-opting or appropriating something that was, that was his. But David doesn't feel like the things are his. He feels like he's presenting things that are in the world in his own, in his own way. So it's the same thing where, you know, like, I, I, I'm paraphrasing, but there was something where somebody was like, well, you know, everyone's doing the Chevron thing now, you know, mm -hmm. the Chevrons are everywhere. It's like, I didn't make up the Chevron. <laughs> He's like, well, you, know, why are you, you know, like, but I mean, come on. I mean, the, the cultural relevance of the Chevron pattern in Twin Peaks is just, it's, it's hugely significant. And yeah. so I, I'm sure that that's a part of why Chevron came back in such a big way. But, you know, so when I played Blue Rose for David, he just smiled and there was so much going on. He said, he said, I, I like it. And for David, you know, that was enough for me because he's never shy at giving his strong opinion, you know, one way or another. And really, I don't know how he felt about it, but in that moment, he celebrated my art and, you know, and gave me a, a sweet smile and that was enough for me. So then I, many, you know, many, many months would pass. And then when I was making my new EP, I really felt like for the song Blue Rose, it was the time for it to come. And there's always a bit of trepidation around that because, again, you know, people, fans of Twin Peaks, you know, you can you can rub them the wrong way, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, 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 it's an elegant territory. And I have, you know, a bit of a history 
of rubbing fans the wrong oh, way. And no, not us. You know, yeah. I, no. <laughs> I, I oh. want to rub the right way. I yeah. really, I do. But but at the same time, you, you can't have any attachment to that. As I've learned, you know, you have to just do what you do and 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 give it and just let it go and and hope for the best. And and whatever happens is what happens. I really love your song. Even associated with Twin Peaks, I love it. I think I love it because it's it feels like a special kind of love. Like there's this something yeah. kind of special love that you have that unique love the blue rose so it's so pretty and i just love it i love all your music but this is i don't know there's something special about that song i appreciate that You get, how did you get the part of uh, FBI agent Tammy Preston? <laughs> I like to say, well, when I, I feel like I auditioned for about 17 years. <laughs> With David, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, come on, like, you know, David knows he has this really strong intuition muscle. I call it a muscle because I do feel like if you if you work this muscle, if you pay attention to what I call the little voices, I don't know what David calls it, but like gut, your gut, your, your, but your spiritual gut. I don't think it's, I think there's a difference between instinct and intuition. I know I'm going kind of left field to answer the question, but I think David has a really strong intuition, this inner guidance and, and he trusts it. And the more you trust your intuition, I think the more it works for you. And, um, I think David had an intuition that I would be um, that I would be Tammy, and I would be a Tammy that would be fulfilling for his vision. And I, you know, I was never told that Tammy was written for me. I don't think she was written for me. I think that what Tammy was was you know really super bright. Um, you know, the the her descriptor was hyper intelligent and and professional. You know, these kinds of things. Tammy was just. She was a, um, a, a beaming energy that was so curious and very thorough and and very enthusiastic, but not, you know, overdone. You know, and and eventually I started creating, you know, what Tammy was for me. There was not like a lot that was drilled into me about who Tammy was supposed to be. I, I think. David knew me as a person and he, he, you know, had this visualization of Tammy and he brought the two together and it worked for him. Christabel, what I really love about your acting performance is the way you're able to say things without actually saying things in dialogue. I mean, the way your body language is, I really... I really connected with that, and I even I kind of look at the way Tammy reacts with with Diane. There's like there's something. There seems like they're having like disagreements, but without talking and stuff. Did <laughs> did you see it that way? Did you see it that way when you were performing? Well, good news is, you know, even for someone who's not an actor, if you're around people who are great actors, it just kind of you know you're just reacting. You're just kind of like Laura Dern is so gifted that you're just in a moment with, with, with the woman who is Diane and mm. everything around you is facilitating this possibility of being this character. So when everyone's present and everyone is kind of giving themselves over to the moment, these things just happen and, mm. and just happen like you would, if you were in a room with such a strong entity that, that is Diane, things are brought out of you. And, you know, Laura Dern was completely encompassing that entity and, mm. and it just, things just happen. And, 
and then and then as I and I'm very comfortable around David at this point and then, you know, became very comfortable around Miguel. So you've got like just all these entities that are working together and, and so things get brought up and and reactions just kind of happen. And as long as, you know, I wasn't trying to be restrictive and I wasn't I was just really looking to be in the moment and, mm-hmm. and being Tammy as fully as I could and letting Christabel just, you know, um, you know, she's, she's, she's in the back there somewhere. I just made sure I knew my lines so that that was like, that was just flowing from me. Right. So as long as the lines were not, I didn't have to reach for them. They were just tip of my tongue. So then I let everything else infuse the character the lines naturally came out because I, I knew them backwards and forwards. And then you hope for the best. But, you know, a lot of this was one takes and, and two takes. I mean, it was happening so fast. But this was like a well-oiled machine. And and it was just happening. You're, I'm dressed in character. Everyone's in character. David calls me Tammy, whether the camera's rolling or not. You know, I'm once I'm on set, I'm, I'm Tammy. And so you're just, you know, with all of those things and... And then it, it, it conjures up this, this otherness, and then, you know, you've got weeks. Well, Christabel, it's been so good talking with you, and I, we could talk forever, oh. but we'd love maybe another time we could have you on and talk more. Yeah. And, and your EP, your new EP, and uh, your touring, and you're thank so busy. You. It's so exciting. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you both, Ben and Brian. It's been lovely. You're super, super, you know, yeah, lots of, lots of light, lots of good juju. I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to start with how you even got involved with, uh, you know, makeup, being a makeup artist. You know, I know you've been doing this for over 20 years. You did Lost Highway. You've done movies like Kill Bill and Madman and Timeless. And of course, mm-hmm. Twin Peaks mm-hmm. Season 3. Uh, can you share with us how you got involved with, with makeup? Oh, my God. You're really taking me back. I was at UCLA and going to um, my classes were mostly in North Campus and I would hang out at North Campus with all the theater majors and the TV majors and film students, and I just started, like, hanging out with them, and they're like, hey, you know how to do wardrobe? Will you come and help us on a short film we're doing? And then it became kind of like, well, can you do makeup, and can you do hair? And, you know, I didn't know any better, and I was like, sure, (laughs) you know? (laughs) So I basically just kind of, like, helped them out and... After college, um, I thought I was going to go into fashion design. And one of my friends who I graduated with had called like a couple of years later and said, hey, I'm associate producing this film and we need a, a makeup hair and wardrobe person. Would you be interested in doing it? And I was like, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So I quit my $40,000 a year job and uh, took a job basically where I made like a dollar eighteen an hour, oh and gosh. that was it. I was like, I knew I had to be in this business. But what I realized was I really loved special effects makeup, and that was something that I was kind of, you know, faking my way through. And I didn't want to fake it anymore, so I ended up going to makeup school oh. after that film was over, and then started working for Roger Corman and it just, the ball just started rolling from there. 
Oh, that's, that's awesome. awesome. That's yeah. so cool. And it seems like you you probably had, you know, some kind of artistic thing in you all along. I mean, I, I read somewhere where when you were a kid, you would uh, sit down and draw with your dad and things. So it seems like that's something that you just had always done. Um, <laughs> yes, that's exactly. My dad was an engineer for Rockwell, and he would, you know, come home every night and um, and basically draw with me because mm-hmm. that's what he would do, you know? So he would sit in his office drawing like his Skylabs and, you know, all the different Apollo, uh, you know, space capsules and stuff. And I would sit there and try and pretend to do the same. So, <laughs> uh, I think, and then my mom was also very artistic. So I think that's kind of how I was able to blend the two. So, cool. um, yeah, and and it's interesting because I was saying to someone on a, in another interview that when I paint with David or when I draw with David and sit down with him, it really it takes me back to that moment with my dad. Oh, that's cool. That's so awesome. Yeah. So yeah. And so you worked w- with 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 David and Sabrina on Lost Highway. Is that kind of how you got you got involved with the new Twin Peaks? I've worked for David off and on for the last you know, over 20 years. Yeah. So we've done a lot of commercials together. We did stuff for his um, website together, oh. things at his house, you know, stuff like that. But, you know, he works so sporadically that he's really kind of ruined me, <laughs> you know, because I have to take other jobs, obviously, with other directors to pay the bills. But I always have in the back of my mind waiting to see when he's going to do another job. So, it was funny because he was starting um, Mulholland Drive, and I was going to do that. And then a really good friend of his, who's a director named Vin Benders, was doing his film at the same time. And many of us from David's team went and helped Vim on his movie. So I didn't get to Mulholland Drive until towards the very end. Wow. Can you share with us how you got the job? How did you get to be uh, the makeup artist for Twin Peaks Season 3? Well, I kind of, you know, knew that something was brewing about five years prior Mm -hmm. because I got these emails from Sabrina, you know, from David, um, asking me some very specific questions. And I didn't know it was Twin Peaks. I didn't know what the project was. I just knew that there was something brewing. Yeah. And then I, just like everybody else, heard it and read it on, you know, Twitter and Daily Variety and all of those things. And I immediately, I think I was at work and I jumped out of my chair and ran outside and called Sabrina immediately. Mm. And I'm like, is there something that you need to tell me? <laughs> and she start, she did the same thing. She started laughing. And then I started laughing. And she's like, yes. She says, but, you know, give us a, give us a few minutes, you know, because we're just sorting some things out. And then later, I think that's when it came out, like, it wasn't going to happen. And then there was yeah. this big Twitter revolt and everything. So I was the same as, as everyone else, as every fan out there. I just had to be patient. And I knew in my heart and soul that I would be there. There was no question. But I, again, I just had to be patient like everyone else. Yeah. Cool. Now, I, can't, I might get the, the dates wrong, but I feel like it was, was it March 2015 that you actually did get the job? Like, would it be maybe six months before production that you started? Oh, easily. Yeah. yeah. 
It was probably around, I want to say, between January and February. Okay. Um, because I went up to David's house. I live around the corner from him, so mm-hmm. it takes me 10 minutes to get there. That's cool. One day, Sabrina <laughs> called and said, you need to you need to be here. And I'm like, what? And she's like, you need to be here now. Like it, everything was, you know, when they call, you answer. Yeah. Kind of thing. Uh, I ran over to the house and, you know, he was in his art studio and gave him a big hug. And, you know, we just sit and talk and paint and drink coffee and he mm-hmm. smokes and, you know, and, and we just sat there and I said, so we're going to do this. And he goes, yeah, we're going to do this. I'm like, Okay. And he goes, are you ready? And I said, are you ready? (laughs) You know, he was there. He had to be there every day, every day. And he has more stamina than anybody I know. (laughs) I was allowed to read the script, but I had to be at at his house to read it. Mm -hmm. And because they didn't have any production offices. So everything was based out of his house. So I would go and I would read a little bit and absorb that. And then I would go back and read a little bit more and absorb that um, because I was not allowed to have my own copy of the script. Uh There was only, I think, five scripts total. Obviously, you know, Scott, the first AD, had his and the costume designer was allowed to have hers. But none of us were uh, allowed to have our own copies. So I had to memorize everything. Wow. wow. Yeah. I know they always say Kyle is the only one that uh, read this, the whole script, but they're talking about actors. But as a, as part of the crew, you actually did get to read the whole script before production. I mean, I guess you had to. Be, yeah. 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 That is something else. I must've read it five times backwards and forward. Wow. Because I had to have everything in my head so that I knew continuity, you know, to the best of my ability and knew what I needed to prepare for, which you can never prepare, but that's besides the point. (laughs) I mean, there's several different actors who were playing different versions of themselves or other characters. I mean, if we're talking about Kyle, we have Dougie manufactured version and we have Cooper and we have Mr. C. What goes into planning for these characters? Well, I think that, you know, when you're planning something like this, that's the problem is that you can't think too hard. You have to kind of shut your brain off and let your creative juices start to flow and let the artistic, you know, qualities that you bring to the table happen. And so, you know, you basically, like I would have my arsenal of products that I would bring with me and people always say, why do you need all this stuff? Mm. And it's like, well, because you just don't know what you're going to need and what you're going to pull from. And I think that's one of the beauties of working to David. He gives me the, the free range of being able to create a character, but it's also within very specific boundaries that he's created in his mind. Yeah. But yet at the same time, we don't necessarily always talk about what those boundaries are. So I won't know a boundary until I've hit it. Oh, wow. So I always leave a percentage of a makeup for David to complete. Oh, okay. So if there's like, if there's a character that maybe I'm not completely 100% sold on what I've done, I'll bring like makeup brushes with me. I'll bring products with me. And if it's the first time when I always look at David's reaction when they walk on set. Hmm. So that tells me, you know, if I've, if I'm within the, the 
parameters of what I'm supposed to be. And then sometimes I'll see a look on his face and I, and his hand starts to shake. Like <laughs> it starts to get all active, you know, like he's, he's, um, he's squeezing his hand, like with as if there was an invisible ball in his hand. Hmm. And that's when I know he wants to put his hands into it. And then I'll walk up to him and I'll hand him something. Uh, and I'll say, here, here's a paintbrush. Here's some blood. Here's some black tempera paint. Here, here's, you know, honey or pudding or anything that I may have in my bag. And, oh, and that's when I know he wants, to, he wants to play with it. And that's something. Yeah, wow. I, I was wondering what that collaboration was like because – because, you know, you're the makeup artist, and yet David, from time to time, and we see this in the documentaries, that he, from time to time, he's he's doing something. I think with Nadu, that he was, like, just doing a couple, adding a couple things to her face. So I think that's really fascinating. So mm-hmm. you, you you share this experience, and you let him do the, the final touches to it. I mean, that's so nice. Oh, absolutely. I, I think just being there on a daily basis was one of my top life experiences, just mm-hmm. working with David and being so respected for the job that we did. And every day we brought it and every day to see, to be with him and experiencing this whole phenomenon is quite something because I was a fan of the series. I didn't work on it. I didn't know him at that time. So to just go back into that world was amazing. And it was really interesting because everyone there thought that I had been there. Hmm. Everyone thought, Oh, you, you know, you were on the original. I'm like, no. no, no." So, uh, so it was really interesting. And, and just also to honor that, that time period of, of television and, you know, what he created and that series was just amazing. I mean, I've never seen anything like it, and I was able to be a part of it. That's awesome, yeah. And you mentioned the, the original series. You actually are friends with the, the previous makeup artist, aren't you? So you were able to be... Yes, you could pick, yes. Yeah, and you, I told her that, you know, I was picking up the baton where she mm-hmm. left it and that I was so grateful for the characters and the choices that she had made, and I was just picking up her work and bringing it to the next place. Yeah, so, nice. um, yeah. And she, she's a very special lady. She's lovely. Well, thank you so much, Debbie. This has been so fun talking with you. And I'm really impressed with your work. It really shows throughout the series. I mean, it's, it's, really, when you think about it, every single shot is, is something that you were a part of. I mean, so cool. it's something, it's so amazing. Thank you. That really means a lot to me. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Welcome back to this best of clip. And what can make a best of clip show better? Maybe a best of clip that has me in it. Host and introduction. Now that's a best of. I was lucky enough to be on Twin Peaks Unwrapped this year to tell them that I had finally met Cheryl Lee. And I had this great idea of sending them the picture of Cheryl Lee and I at the time when we were actually recording the interview. And I totally scammed Ben and Brian. They didn't know I was coming on the podcast to talk about Cheryl Lee at all. They thought I was totally coming on to talk about the Letterman book. And so while we're talking, I sent this 
picture to them and you know it made a nice moment when they saw it and everything Scott and, and, uh-huh. and um, so I thought it was Scott w- I thought it was kind of what I mean what the heck is going on Scott here? I mean I actually wrote this show and they're breaking in on me Scott what 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 is this Schaefer what are you Scott. doing here huh you're interrupting Scott me. Schaefer hey what's going on Dozy dozy dozy, a little lambsy divey, a kiddly divey too, wouldn't you? Oh, mercy dozy dozy dozy, a little lambsy divey, a kiddly divey too, wouldn't you? Now if the words sound queer, or funny to your ear, a little bit jumbled and jivey, sing mercy dozy and dozy dozy and little lambsy divey. Oh, mercy dozy. Dozy-dozy, a little lambsy-divey, a kiddly-divey too, wouldn't you? A kiddly-divey too, wouldn't you? Let's just roll the clip. So, Scott, uh, what have you been up to lately? What do you, what's going on within your life? Well, so much is going on, and I, I just feel like we have to start out this way. We have so much to cover, and I get that. But the question is, do you guys have your phones in front of you? Yeah, sure. Sure. Okay. I want you to take a look at your phone. Are we going to do a magic trick right now? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you're good David yes. blaming us all this. If you stuff. ask me is there something related to Twin Peaks on the phone, I will say yes. yes. Yeah, so take a look at your phone. Yeah. You guys should have a tech. Um This is this is dead air, but people love it. I'll cut this out. <laughs> uh, I have no texts from you. 
A few moments later. It's coming. All right. Because while it's coming, I'll just say this is what I've been up to. And um, I've been dying to tell you. Oh, oh. Six and a half hours later. It's downloading. I know. It's never it's been this two, slow. 2.4 you know, megabytes. You know, here. in a normal circumstance, we'd get this instantly. But because yes, right. we're on a show. I know, but it's fun. <laughs> play a little Twin Peaks music. How come, how come we both can't get it? A few moments later. Isn't that weird? It's it the internet it's here. What, it's not coming through? This was like my big plan. This is why I'm here. Hold on. Three days later. Is there, is, are you tricking us? Is this just an image of downloading? <laughs> is this just an image? That would be killer, Scott. Did awesome. you just send us an image? <laughs> an image of nothing. Yeah. I, I'm trying to kill the show from the top. Yeah. You did, you, did you? Did uh, you? This actually... was my gift because I'm so concerned. All right, hold okay. on. I'll, I'll shut up the else. Wi-Fi, turn it back on, and hope that it uh, it fixes it. Three twenty-eight a.m. Uh, yes. But I'm gonna send it as an email. I just want to be sure I have. Do you guys have your email with you? Yes, our email's I just open. I sent you an email. Yes. Check the email. And this is what I've been up to. Wow! No! It's a lookalike. <laughs> we we got to say, Scott Ryan is posing with Cheryl Lee, which I have to imagine oh you're gosh. in L.A., maybe? Yes, she, she looks like she LA. looks like I'm being he- he- held, held captive. captive. <laughs> She's oh holding God. a sign that says, please help me, call 911. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Your, your dreams have come true. Wow. So tell us everything. Everything. So, this is funny because I'm I've start been crying sitting on this. this. I'm going to start crying. Ben's crying, Scott. I'm very, t- I'm very moved for you. I um, And, you know, I could not tell anyone. I've kept this a complete secret. But it's been weighing on me. I've only kept things from you guys twice. One was when we were starting the Blue Rose, and it was killing me. And then that I finally met Cheryl Lee. And I feel like you guys have always been there telling me that I'm going to meet Cheryl Lee, and it's going to happen. And um, it, it did. And issue eight of the Blue Rose will be the interview that I've been oh, waiting to have my wow. gosh. You, it, it, you stalked her, you, you sent emails and letters and, <laughs> <laughs> and if, if you'll just leave me alone, I'll do I'll the interview. <laughs> um, it is funny because I don't have her contact information so I may never be able to uh, meet up with her again what? But, so how did you um, get a hold of her like without contact information it was just well i it was through someone else okay and they set it up for me to, wow. to happen and very nice so, um the interview is exactly what i always dreamed of i mean i got to ask her all the questions i wanted to this is an interview that i think twin peaks fans I don't know. I, I, maybe it's just because I've wanted it for so long. But I mean, it was great. She hmm. was. She talked about everything. She answered all of my questions. We went through Firewalk with me. Um, I'm man enough to say that both of us cried three times in the interview. Aww. Wow! Like, isn't that crazy? Yeah. I mean, because we were really getting into Laura Palmer, mostly with uh, Firewalk with me and all the abuse that Laura goes through. She was a, a magical person. It was the greatest, it was it. So what I'm uh, here to say is the Blue Rose is done. I'm over it. <laughs> <laughs> I can care less. 
<laughs> I don't care if we ever do another thing. Uh, I got my Cheryl Lee interview. To hell with Twin Peaks. I'm out of here. Goodbye. Oh, man, Scott, I'm so happy for you. Yeah, that is, that is that something. That is wild. And I know people can't see what we're seeing, but you see the two of you guys, uh, you know, uh, uh, hugging. And it's a beautiful picture of the two of you together. There. Is this uh, photo, will it appear in the magazine so everybody can see? Well, you know, I have to get things through John Thorne. Um, he's a little more... I hate to say professional because I don't want to put me down, <laughs> but uh, more prim and proper, let's say, mm. than me. But I would like to do a side piece w- that goes along with the interview. The interview was super long. I think we talked for two and a half hours. Wow. So it's really a long interview, and I got to fit that in. But she's going to be on the cover of issue eight, and it's going to be the main part. But I'd like to do a sidebar just about the personal aspect of it for me, because this really was everything to me. Like, I mean, I've wanted this for like 28 years now or whatever it is. Yeah, it's 28 years. And I didn't know if we were going to get the interview until an hour before it happened because she wasn't sure if she was going to be able to make it. And, you know, I'm always a pessimist. So I was like, it's fallen through a million times. It's not going to happen. And then it did. I'm just so excited to share this with the world. But I also was really excited to keep it with me. You know, I didn't post the picture on Facebook. I didn't talk about it with anyone. Nobody knows. I mean, mm. I'm, I'm coming out now because it's been killing me not to tell you guys. And I'm like, I want to share it with Ben and Brian. I should be breaking this story on my own. <laughs> but well, thank you, Scott. No, because you guys have always been so supportive of me. I'm like, I want to come on uh, here and capture your guys' excitement because it was great. We will be right back after Scott stops bragging to everyone in the audience about meeting Cheryl Lee. We get it. You met Cheryl Lee. Now get over it. This is Rob King with 25 Years Later. Our staff and editors would like to thank you for reading our site. We began as a site dedicated to the analysis of Twin Peaks, but today we are happy to share our expanded material for similarly intricate series, popular culture fandoms, film, and Shutter content. We will continue to extend our love for Twin Peaks' deep exploratory analysis in the fan community as we look to each of these. So please join us as we discuss film releases from A24, Shudder, and Shout Factory, as well as series like Lost, Northern Exposure, and The OA, just to name a few. And you won't want to miss our lineup of interviews from Twin Peaks cast and crew to the directors of Shudder original content and more. And as always, we hope to bring you thoughtful, deep analysis to the series that brought us together, Twin Peaks. So again, thank you always for your time and dialogue with 25YL. Are you having a hard time finding a good book to read about Twin Peaks? Did you finish binge-watching Twin Peaks in quarantine, and now you're looking for more? If so, we have the book for you. Twin Peaks Unwrapped, the book. Based off the popular show from the 1990s, read about the making of each episode from over 100 cast and crew members. This book covers Season 1, Season 2, Firewalk With Me, and Season 3. But wait, there's more! This book has commentary from the community and the host from the wildly popular podcast Twin Peaks Unwrapped. Order now! Supplies are very limited. Go to Blue Rose Mag 
Bluehost.com today. Merry Christmas. Lucy, why couldn't I spend the night last night? Will you be having coffee, Deputy Brennan? Is this about the Miss Twin Peaks pageant? Sheriff Truman said the Miss Twin Peaks pageant is almost sold out, but and Punky. I heard this is going to be a very special show, and if I don't get to go, I'm going to scream! But, Punky, that's what I've been trying to tell you. I already bought us tickets to the Miss Twin Peaks pageant, and I selected your favorite seats on the Joe's Pub seating chart. They're in your Christmas stocking, Pookie. Oh, Andy. The Pink Room Burlesque presents the 8th Annual Miss Twin Peaks pageant at Joe's Pub in New York City on Saturday, January 19th. 119. Tickets available now at publictheater.org and thepinkroomburlesque.org. Okay, I hope you're enjoying the show so far. Um, I do have a little programming note to let you know that later in the week, we're going to have Dick Tremaine on, and he's going to tell us when it's okay to wear yoga pants and when it isn't. We also booked some guy with a green glove that's going to pop balloons of evil or something. I mean, there's no way that's going to be a letdown. So we've got some great things coming up. But right now we've got some best of clips. We've got author Christine McKenna talking about Room to Dream and actor Richard Beamer and his career. So take a listen. Christine McKenna on the phone. You know, in 1990s press kit for Wild at Heart, David's biography was just four uh, words. Eagle Scout, Missoula, Montana. They almost called the book that. Did you really? Uh, <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> you give us so much more than that, and uh, we love the book. I think it's, yes. it's wonderful. Oh, so, thank you. You've known David Lynch for a long time. Can you share with us how you met him? In the late 70s, I saw Eraserhead when it had its four-year run at the New York Theater, and I was writing for the Los Angeles Times and for a few other publications at that time, so I wanted to interview David, and I tracked him down, and he was pretty easy to find them because he was just trying to get going with his yeah. career. And so we met at a coffee shop, of course. He liked what I wrote about him, and we just stayed in touch. Why do you think David Lynch decided to do this book now? Well, I proposed it to him, and frankly, I don't know why he said yes. <laughs> I, um, well, the, the case I made for it was I said two things. He hates all the misinformation and wrong information that's out mm. there about him. I said, people are going to continue writing about your life and here's a chance for you to get the story straight and tell it the way you want it told. And I also said, other people make money off the story of your life. Why don't you? Um, He said, yes. How'd you come up with a structure? So it's an interesting structure where you take a piece and he takes a piece. How did that come about? Well, that came about because I wanted David's voice to be as prominent as possible in the book. And I didn't want to just interview him and interweave his quotes with everybody else's quotes. Partly because David has a very unfettered imagination when he talks he'll go down avenues you couldn't have even thought of and I knew if I just interviewed him I wouldn't get as much he'd answer the questions I gave him but there's a lot of stories in the book that there's no way they would have come up if I'd just been interviewing him like the Marlon Brando stories it just seemed like a good way to make him really present in the book I really like it I think it works I think oh, it really yeah. did thank you did you do all the research and then when all the research was done you'd you'd give him some of it and he would then respond I would write a chapter complete a chapter send it to him he would read it then we'd have a session and he would talk to me 
and I would record it and turn it into text. And then he would edit that text. There were a lot of times that he cut things out. So that's kind of how his text was shaped. The part that you recorded for the initial reaction, is that the audio that we hear in the audiobook? I haven't been able to bring myself to listen to the audiobook. Oh, yeah. But here's what happened with that. David and I were recording our parts the same week. So I go into the studio on Monday, and at the end of Monday, I get a call, and David sat down to do it, and he said, I can't do this. You know, this just feels like bullshit. I'm not going <laughs> to do this. And so I emailed him. I said, David, you are a great storyteller. You've told these stories many times. I'm going to go through the text, just annotate it, you know, just say, this is that anecdote. Just tell that story. So that's how he did it. He didn't read the text. He told stories from the chapters and I know that there's things on the audiobook that aren't in the book and yeah. much in the book that's not on the audiobook. I like that of it. It was very interesting online. Uh, there was a lot of commotion. People were like, the audio is different from the book. Mm -hmm. uh, ben and myself were like, wow, this it's very special though. And I, I think it's very David Lynchian to do, but it, I think it really yeah. adds another dimension and I'm like, man, I wish all people who did a biography like this, this is how they did it. Because it doesn't sound he's just reading, it just sounds more personalized and more warmth to it. Yeah. Like he's just not he's, yeah, he's not reading yeah. from a script. Right. Story he talk, talks about the birth of Jennifer and you know it's very uncommon those days for men to be there for delivery. And in the audiobook yeah. he goes and he says, "Oh, she was it was beautiful and powerful." Mm. And then he goes on and goes to a taxi and the taxi driver says, "It's a beautiful day." And he goes on and says, "Oh, we went home and the, and the, all the kids in the neighborhood he showed them the baby and stuff." And so it was like, "Oh, this is so beautiful." And it's not in the book. Oh, that sounds great. It's so good. <laughs> I, I wish like, he told, yeah, I wish he told me all that. He I, didn't. So oh, wow. Well, so I'm glad at least he saw the audio book. Yes, yeah. yes. But it was, it, thank you for sharing that, because I was curious to know, like, how did that process work? And, like, how, did, how come it's one place and not in another place? It was entirely up to David. You know, when he went back, there were some things he felt like expanding on, and other things he didn't even want to address. So he kind of edited as he went along when he was doing the audio book. Because of David Lynch's workload with Twin Peaks and his nude book and everything else he's doing. How long did it take you guys to do this book from start to finish? Like, when was the beginning point and when did you guys wrap it all up? I, I actually did it very, very quickly. It took three years. He wow. agreed to do the book, oddly enough, about a week before Twin Peaks was finally greenlit. So he was shooting and editing it while we were working on the book. Wow. So it was hard. He was wildly busy then, but we kept to a schedule and we got it done. He's very good about making deadlines. I think at one point it was going to come out in 2017, but I think a lot of us are excited it didn't come out in 2017 because you got to include stuff from the Twin Peaks uh, return that you wouldn't have probably been able to talk about if it had come out last year. No, you're absolutely right. In fact, David, it was such a stickler. Nobody was allowed to talk to me until the last episode had aired. So I had to write that last chapter in three weeks. Oh, wow. The book was, you know, the book was going to go on press, so I had to do that chapter really quickly because nobody could talk to me and nobody violates his wishes about things like that. Yeah. So the book would feel incomplete without the return being in there. I agree with you. And you did more than 100 interviews for this book. Were there things you learned about David that you didn't know about? 
Yes, a, a lot of things. And this sounds kind of corny to say, but what I learned is he's a really good guy. Like, mm-hmm. he really has helped a lot of people, and he's very generous. That's probably the most surprising thing, because I've interviewed lots of powerful, famous people, and usually it's not the case that the closer you get, the better they look. Quite the opposite. Mm-hmm. With David, I learned that, and I also learned how unpredictable he is. You never know what he's going to like or not like. Yeah, but I kind of knew him pretty well before we started this, because I've been writing about him for like 30 years. For me, I feel like I learned that he was kind of a ladies' man. (laughs) Yes. You didn't know that? I I don't know why I didn't realize that, because he's so charming. He had girlfriends in kindergarten. (laughs) Yeah, he's been a ladies' man since he was out of the womb. Girls love David. Yeah, he's Really, women love him. He's always had a lot of girlfriends, and he uh, loves women. So, yeah. and he started young, as he says in the book, wow. <laughs> like fourth grade or kindergarten. Yeah. He was carrying somebody's towel. <laughs> yeah. Do you have any uh, favorite interviews and stories that you obtained in researching the book? Well, when I started working on the book, I had just moved to a new neighborhood. David's first wife lived two doors up from me, wow. which was really weird. Yeah. And we became good friends, and she was an enormous help. There were a couple people who I really loved talking to, and I feel like I got to know them. That would be Peggy, his first wife, and Mary Fisk, his second wife, who's really a wonderful person. Hmm. And um, it was great getting to meet Jack Fisk, because he's such an important part of David's world, and he's a great artist. And also um, Richard Beamer. He and I became Mm. friends. But everybody in David's world is nice, you know, because David doesn't have not nice people around. He doesn't have divas. So, yeah, everybody was great, really. Were there people you wish you could have interviewed? I'm I'm thinking about people even like maybe who have died, like Catherine Coulson. Oh, yeah. there's. Well, I did interview Catherine Coulson. In fact, I was friends with Catherine, independent of David, for decades. I met her like in 1990. John Hurt, I missed him, obviously. Mm. Alan Sled, it was really sad I couldn't talk to him. Yeah. Nicholas Cage is the only person who said no. I have no idea why he said no, but he said no. Huh. Patricia Arquette just never got back to me, even though I tried for three years to talk to her. Yeah. And David's parents, it would have been great to talk to them because they're such a the keystone to who he is. Yeah, um, true. But yeah, Alan Sled, it was really sad I couldn't talk to him because he was so brilliant for one thing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Jack Nance, of course. Oh, of course. terrible. I didn't get to talk to Jack Nance. Yeah. I was thinking of this story about the father and there was, I think, a mouse in the house and he had to get a bat and beat it with with clothes. (laughs) It's like, whoa. Yes, yes. (laughs) And I think, boy, that seems so violent. I think that story is, I know, I think it sounds, that's a really violent story and I included that. There's a couple stories like that, like when his father shoots a porcupine and then he's trying to pop a cow. There were these violent things in his childhood, but because his father grew up on a ranch, basically, Mm. in a rural environment, there were guns and hunting and shooting and, like, a mouse being beaten to death in a closet was no big deal, (laughs) but it seemed pretty weird to me. Yeah. It it does fit into his narrative now, who he is, you know? Like, there is, like, this sexual Mm -hmm. violence in his work, and I always wondered where Uh it came from, and now I know. He still seemed to have a normal life, but, right, there were some things that happened that probably uh, influenced him or inspired him or he he, he doesn't seem to be afraid of death I mean the one story that stood out to me was when he went into the morgue he Uh wanted to go into the morgue and look at real dead bodies and they let him 
and mm-hmm. it didn't bother him. Yeah. That explains I a lot. I can't do that today. I, I mean, yeah. I, up, I couldn't do that. Yeah. yeah. It's an interesting aspect of him. I think now his, his comfort with mortality has to do with his spiritual beliefs. Mm. He wasn't meditating when he visited the morgue, but I think that those kinds of understandings were just maybe an intuitive part of who he is. And what are you doing next? What are you working on now? Starting to get another book biography project off the ground, but I don't want to jinx it by saying who it's with, but right. that's that's what I'll be doing next after I recover from this. This was a big push. You know, I had to totally focus to get this done in three years. So well, I'm goofing around a lot, too, right now. <laughs> well, the book is so impressive. It really shows the work that you put into it. It's just, it really is an incredible piece. Thank you for all you've done with this. Yeah. Well, thank you for all that you're doing. We all love David, and he yeah. deserves our support. So we're on the phone we're with Richard Beamer. We know him as Ben Horn from Twin Peaks, but he's so much more, and I really am so excited to talk to you, Richard. I guess we're rolling now. Is that what that intro? <laughs> yes, yeah, That's we're rolling. We're rolling. Oh, you didn't roll the first part where I just said hello. Okay. <laughs> I'm used to doing everything's behind the scenes, yes, which oh. I find much more interesting than what ends up being in front of the camera. Twin Peaks is the exception. What was one of the first things you documented, and what with what kind of equipment? I knew that when you were a teenager, you did photography, but I was just curious maybe what your one of your first memories of documenting something would be. Uh, the first film I made was in Mississippi in 1964. So how old were you during that time? About 24, something like that. In summer of 64, it was about voter registration, and, mm-hmm. and it was called Freedom Summer, and that had to do with blacks registering to vote. There was something called the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and college students, they decided to organize a voter registration registration in Mississippi because the blacks couldn't vote. So to do that, a lot of college age folks who were interested in social issues and so forth went down to Mississippi that summer. The voter registration phase of the Mississippi Project consisted of a house-to-house canvas to try to encourage people to go to the courthouse and register to vote. When trying to encourage the people to register, the biggest problem you deal with is fear. Registration in Mississippi consists of filling out a long and extremely complicated form, in every way designed to eliminate the Negro. Like, by whom are you employed? Well, see, when you put by whom are you employed, you fired by the time you get back home. You know, heads rolled. And uh, one of the things that happened there that made the summer very well known, did you ever see a film called Mississippi Burning? I've seen it, but it's probably been 20 years or so since I've seen it. It had to do with that summer, and it was about all of us that were down there, and three boys were killed that summer. Well, they were found missing. Goodman, Cheney, and Schwerner. Two guys were from, white guys from New York, one was a black guy from Mississippi. The FBI was looking for them all summer, couldn't find them. They suspected it was the local sheriff and his buddies. Turned out that it was. They found them near the end of the summer, buried under a dam. You know you, you know how to make a dam in the country. You just get a big bulldozer and you dig a big hole and, and you bottle up like a little valley or something and then, you know, wait for the rain. Well, the 
part where the bulldozer were building building up the, the dam part, uh, they found them under there. Oh my gosh! Oh. Did this happen before or after you were you decided to make a film about that summer? I went there, and it was at the end of the summer that they were found. Oh, oh. wow! So it was well, we were done there. Yeah, but I did not go to Mississippi to make a film. I went to Mississippi to be a part of voter registration. This was supposed to continue on in the winter. Other people were supposed to come down and do voter registration in the winter. So this was called a summer. Since we were the first group there, I got an idea that it might be interesting to make a little film so the next wave of students and everyone that was coming down there would have some idea what they were getting into, because we did. I know that it was only a few years ago PBS did their own Freedom Summer documentary, and I know they used a lot of your footage for that. That's so, really cool. Yeah. It's never been out there all by itself. You know, I love your, uh, your some of your photography work that you've shared over the years with Twin Peaks people. Like, uh, the last episode of Twin Peaks, I think for about a week or so, you did uh, photography on the set. Can you share with us how you got involved? With wow, you guys have been doing research, haven't you? We're oh, yeah, we're, we're good. Trying. Yeah. <laughs> we're wow. <laughs> it was the last episode. An uh, episode took, what? It took eight days to make it, so we always had a weekend in there. Huh. And, you know, since it was a big cast and all, generally I had two to three days' work on the show. So uh, I had done my time or whatever, and there was a feeling that this might be the last show, and we never had any photographers on the set. I mean, some people came down from the production office, I guess, and took some pictures, but there were no professional photographers that came in like do on movie sets and yeah. really, really color it. You know, I told David, I said, I, I like still photography, and, and no one's doing this. How about if I just sort of cover you, get your camera? That's pretty cool. And I love uh, how you captured them. I mean, did you t tell them how to react, or did they just pose? Or I mean, they, they, they just have this wonderful reactions that you get out of them. Yeah. It's just conversation. You know, you know these people for the most part. I knew, you know, some people better than others. And um, and I think they felt free, too. I mean, it was just, you know, another actor taking some photographs. Mm. That they, I don't think they thought, wow, you know. Yeah. We're going, to, we're going to be talking about this 24 years. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it was like a bunch of, uh, well, I can't say selfies, but, um, yeah, you know, it was just loose. And um, I liked how they came out in terms of what you're talking about, the people and yeah. kind of Grace Zabriskie. I love the shot of her mm. and Ray. And, uh, oh, there's so many. I That's really like Iconic. They're iconic they really right now. Iconic, yeah. Twin Peaks returned, and David asked you to document some of it. Can you share with us how that came about? No. <laughs> Great talking to you guys. <laughs> <laughs> what do you want to know? How long did you uh, document for? I think it was a couple of weeks. One of the things I love about your style, at least some of the documentaries I've seen you do, is that you're kind of actively uh, present in the, the yes, documentaries, yes. which I think is a beautiful thing, is that it's not a passive thing, that you, you're talking to crew members and you're talking to other people, other subjects. I think that's a beautiful style to do that. I feel like I'm part of the crew. Very int more intimate and very light. Yeah, and it's very uh, playful. Pardon me, pardon me. Pardon, pa which way to the Twin Peaks Sheriff's Office movie set? North. Hmm? North. It's what my own film is about too. I cut right in the middle of a scene, and you hear us talking about it and why it's not working or something. I mean, you didn't think about it, but you know that you're asking me. It just seemed to be those were the interesting things to me. Yes, it, it had to be integrated. It can't be just one long close-up on David Lynch. I've learned to film everything that I saw, and then I'd figure it out later where it might go. Yeah, I wanted to see the process. 
So there are a couple scenes in it, I think sections where you actually see it starts from nothing and, and becomes a set and actors and cameras. I love seeing them, them building the set. And then I, I imagine that everything is somewhat near each other. Is it all in one warehouse? Yeah, it looks like one big room. Yeah, it was all in one place, yeah. Yeah. It was wild. Yeah, you did a fantastic... I mean, those two documentaries were one of my favorites. And I think it's because you feel like you're in it. Because yes. you're talking you're to people. You're part of the crew. You're part of the crew. Yeah, yeah. You felt like it's a POV of a crew member almost. Right. Right. Well, it was. Yeah. <laughs> and I liked your yeah. shot where the camera is being brought up with the curtain. So it's like yeah. looking down. Did you attach the camera to a rope and you just pulled it up there? Like, what did you do? You know, they had a crane. Oh, okay. That's how those guys got up there. You see one guy, big rope, and he's pulling up, right? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. The guys were going up and down, and I said, my God, I got I want to <laughs> see what it looks like from up there. Yeah. They said, well, jump, jump on. So they, you know, one of those cranes and yeah. were up in the air. So you're going to take that end and retie it over here? Correct. Okay, got it. But in the meantime, I'm going to be able to see into that room, which is exactly what I want. Very quiet, everybody. Roll sound. Rolling, rolling. You're not only a filmmaker, you're also an actor, and you acted in Twin Peaks. So I wondered, I'm guessing you acted first, and then, you know, weeks, months later, they then did the documentary? Yeah, yeah, that's what happened. Yeah, I was yeah. there. I mean, it only took me, like, I only shot for two days as an actor. And then, oh. and then I, you know, put my real clothes back on. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and what was it like working with David Lynch again? I mean, it's been, it was probably 25 years since you had actually done that. It wasn't easy, and that's not because of David. It was because of me. As an actor, I wanted to find this person again, and I put it to sleep a long time ago, and I didn't have that much, like a lot of actors didn't. I mean, you had to hit the nail on the head immediately. There was no warming up. So that was a concern of mine. I don't know if other actors feel like this, but when you get on a set with a crew of I think, well, how many people? I don't know, 60 people on that crew, one or another? You're, you're in front of a lot of people who know each other very well, have their own language at this point, you know what I mean? Yes. Mm-hmm. And you're, uh, someone says action to you, and you're really not that comfortable with the crew and your situation with the crew. And the crew is important. I mean, you know, at least it is for me. Some people, I suppose, can just block that out and go for it. But mainly I didn't. I I would finish a scene and think, no, that's, that's just not Ben. That's just, uh, I don't know what I'm doing here. This is, it, it doesn't feel right. And then he would say, no, no, it's good. It's good. Next one. Next one. So, <laughs> so I said, okay, all right. You know, what can you do? I mean, right. He, he likes it, he likes it, but I wasn't completely living it yet. Whereas in the original, I finally started feeling really good. Whatever lines were given to me, I just had a feeling of how it would all go. So You know, the part to me that felt very much like Ben and I thought was my favorite scene of yours was when you're talking about your father giving you a bike. And I thought oh, that like yeah. a beautiful scene. That was a good scene. It was such a beautiful scene, and I th- I, I rewatched it today, and it's like you know what he's he seems like he's really trying to say there was better times. You know, we didn't have this whole terrible violence and stuff. Mm. And I, just, I don't know. I just love that scene. I think you did an incredible job with that scene. Oh, thank you very much. Briefly, I'd love to just talk about 1991 or 90. Uh, you know, back in the day acting, you could have been the killer. You no, know, you were on the script, Ben as the killer. You actually did do the scene of killing Maddie, and I just wondered, as an actor, what was that like for you? Where you knew. 
you weren't really going to be playing that part. It wasn't really going to be on TV, but you d had to go and, and act it anyways. Well, I was pleased because I knew the killer wasn't going to be in the show much longer. <laughs> oh. As it turns out, that wasn't the case. I mean, I should have remembered this is David Lynch, and if he wants to have the killer be alive, then, then that's where it's going to be. That's true. Yeah. As far as that's concerned, I knew about it, and so did Ray. I think it was David called us into a room before he said, I want to talk to you, and he said, uh, we made a decision, and uh, you're going to do this and you're going to do that, but we don't want anyone to know, so we're going to play it like you're the killer, Richard, or whatever the scene was, and we're going to do the scene, and then we're going to do a scene with Ray, and it was a third, how oh, was the third one there? It would be Bob, so it would be Frank Silva. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. So, uh, I was first, which was kind of fun, because that sort of set the blocking of the scene, wherever that footage is, if you could get it, it's a million dollars to you guys. I, I, oh, that I, would be great. I really just want to know how you betray a killer. You played in X-Files and you played, uh, you know, evil characters to some degree. Ben Horn's not evil, though. I can't see Ben Horn being evil. I'm sure you did an amazing job and yeah. how you betrayed the character. I don't know. I don't find it difficult being evil. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean, guys? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Are you hearing me? I'm hearing you. Uh -huh. Uh, uh, it's not. It's fun doing all of that. Yeah. Uh, I thought you were the killer. That's when right. I so so Brian is actually new to Twin Peaks. Only maybe two years ago, I introduced him to Twin Peaks, and that's how we've gotten started here. And so we were watching week to. We'd only watch one episode a week. Yeah, we and we would talk week. about. It, and for the longest time, he thought Ben Horn was the killer. I thought Ben was Horn the was the killer. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Seems right. Doesn't yeah. It? <laughs> Thank you, Richard, so much for your time. It really is an honor to get to talk to you. And I. Uh, no, my I can't pleasure. My pleasure. I'm glad we finally got this together. year of best of clips from the Twin Peaks Unwrapped podcast. Thanks for listening to Ben and Brian. They do the most wonderful show in the Twin Peaks community. We're so lucky to have them. It's fun that we can come out here and do a best of show where I get to make a fool of myself for them. And I hope you enjoyed our late night talk show um, extravaganza that we tried to pull off that really is just here to showcase the amazing guests that Ben and Brian get every year. We're just so excited to have them. Please be sure to go out and rate Twin Peaks Unwrapped as a great podcast. Always remember to subscribe to the Blue Rose magazine. We want to thank Josh Minton from the Red Room podcast who played the sidekick tonight. And let's have Silencio play us off. And we had another great year. And here's to another. Good night.
has been a Twin Peaks Unwrapped production associated with Scott Ryan Productions. And her name is Irene, and good night.